tequila and tonic. It's actually pretty good. Oh, I'd kind of run into this a little bit in my research, yeah. You go three, two, one, you'll say, hey, this is Max and Jason watch a movie. I'm Max, and uh, uh, no, you won't say that. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And today we will be covering Enter the Dragon from 1973, starring, directed by Robert Klaus, written by Michael Allen, starring Bruce Lee as Mr. Lee, John Saxon as Roper, Jim Kelly as Williams, Anna Capri as as the Madam, Bob Wall as Ohara, Ken Sheen as Han, Bolo Young as the Enforcer. I don't know if he's got a real name. Oh, he's just Bolo in the movie and an assortment of other actors who don't really matter. This was a Warner Brothers production. Yes. In combination with the with with the Golden Harvest films. The origin of this film is kind of interesting and I'm not going I'm not going to go on too deep a dive on this, but Bruce Lee was we we all know him as this icon now, but he didn't start out that way. He uh came to America in the late 60s, I want to say. When he was about 18, he was getting in a lot of trouble in Hong Kong for getting in fights and being a rebellious youth. And he's he's sort of known as this kind of icon of 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 the Chinese of Chinese culture, right? But he's an American citizen. He was born in San Francisco in 1940. He's also Chinese. He lived yeah. in Hong Kong most of his life. So there's this kind of interesting tension in all of his work, uh, where he's kind of struggling with these two citizenships and these two bodies of ideas. They, they, I mean, the classic and kind of cliched eats me west kind of uh, mindset. But anyway, he came to the United States. He finished high school here. He went to college in Seattle. A lot of people mistakenly say that he majored in philosophy, but he was actually a drama major, but he took a lot of philosophy classes and he was really in- intrigued by philosophy. He immediately starts teaching martial arts when he gets here and he's kind of an expensive teacher of martial arts. So he starts to get to know people uh, who are wealthy in California and on the West Coast. And that'll come up later. He catches the eye of some movie producers after doing a demonstration and at the Long Beach Karate Tournament by Ed Parker, I think is that guy's name. Ed Parker's a Kimpo guy. He was in one of the Pink Panther movies. Jason just had a knowing smile. But anyway, uh, he caught the he caught the eye of producer, I think it was Fred Weintraub. I could be wrong about that. But this lands him his television roles in Longstreet and most importantly in The Green Hornet where he'll play Cato. He starts to develop these ideas uh, for the screen. I mean, he's starting to know people. He becomes really good friends with Steve McQueen, with uh, uh Steve McQueen becomes one of his students, uh, buys him his first car, in fact. Oh, who, he's great friends with James Coburn. And that'll come up later on in my story. But he tries to get his star planted here in the States. It doesn't work out. He pitches some shows, one of them called The Warrior, which is about a Chinese guy who's going to, who comes to the West to try and find the person who killed his brother or something. I can't remember exactly what, but it's a Chinese guy moving through the Old West. You may remember this. This became a show that didn't star Bruce Lee, but starred the non-martial artist David Carradine. Now, this was produced by Warner Brothers. The show is called Kung Fu. So he's myth by this but at the same time he's getting a lot of offers to come to Hong Kong and do movies because the Green Hornet was so popular in Hong Kong that that it was called the Cato show okay and uh and this makes some sense because if anybody's watched the Green Hornet one of the big things that happened in that is uh the Green Hornet was uh played by was, was do you remember the Green Hornet character's name is it Brett I, you know, I, ne- I never saw I never okay. saw the Green Hornet yeah so anyway here's what would happen the Green Hornet or, or the Cato show as you yeah. uh, or the Cato show as it was known 
in Hong Kong, the Green Hornet and Kato would uh, would come upon bad guys, and the Green Hornet would drift into the background, and Kato would spring forward and do the martial arts, and then occasionally the Green Hornet would jump in and punch somebody or deliver the coup de gras to in to, to foes that that Kato had already decimated. Ben Williams. Played the Green Hornet, but but the character's name was Brett Butler. This is sort of this is sort of like uh, Batman and Robin, only yeah. only if Robin was a capable fighter, uh, uh, which Burt Ward uh, from the '60s show wasn't. That, that's those shows also did a crossover, by the way. Green Hornet and Batman did a crossover. No shit. No shit. I never knew that. Yes, they, it, 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 it happened. Burt Ward pissed Bruce Lee off and was scared, I guess, for a lot of the time on set. But nothing came of it, and Bruce Lee was quite gracious. And But Kung Fu, sorry, the Kung Fu Western didn't go through, and Bruce Lee was getting all these offers. And James Coburn said, look, this is the best thing that could have happened for you. You would have stayed here, and you would have done your stuff on television, on the small screen, and you never would have, you probably never would have made the transition from small screen to big screen, which was a big problem at the time. You had television actors, and you had big screen actors. And the two didn't cross over very often. So what Coburn advised, so says James Coburn, and James Coburn has a very strange way of telling stories that make you go, man, if that really happened that way, that's really cool. But it seems like you're a little full of shit a lot of times, James Coburn. He said, you're going to waste yourself on the small screen. Go to Hong Kong, learn the craft, develop your acting yeah. technique, yeah, yeah. You know, develop your style. And then, you know, the, the world will have no choice but to take notice of you. James Coburn was a really, really, really loved Bruce Lee. He was one of his pallbearers, actually. I knew that, yeah. And as was Steve McQueen. There are a few other people uh, that aren't big stars, but, but were close to Lee. And so he did that. And every movie that Bruce made did better than the one before it broke that he was breaking box office records and so so he does I think the first film he does is the Chinese connection the big boss um, after the big boss he's able to call his own shots he directs and stars and writes in his in his third film which is way of the dragon breaks more records and that's when Warner Brothers takes notice that this guy is got something we should do a movie with this guy and so they come in and they they working with Golden Harvest and Bruce Lee's little uh, production company with Golden Harvest, Warner Brothers, they developed this this new movie, and uh, that is Injury the Dragon. Uh, they bring in Robert Klaus. They they have this new writer, Mike, not new writer, but they, they bring in their own writer, and they have a tightly constrained budget of eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the film. The film goes more or less without a hitch, as 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 without a hitch as anything can be in Hong Kong in the nineteen seventies. Uh, they shoot the film completely without sound. They add all that sound in later because Hong Kong is just too noisy. The film in the film is a huge success. Uh, it's released a month after. Lee dies. Lee died before the film was released. It made $350 million worldwide. Now, right. I, 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 uh, I uh, adjusted. I went to the inflation calculator. And folks, if you haven't gone to the inflation calculator, it's one of my favorite new hobbies. So if you adjusted $73 to $2021, um, the budget would be $5 million. And the film would have grossed $2 billion. It is, singular, it is singularly the most successful martial arts film in history. There's no other martial arts film that's even come close to this. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why. I have some ideas and we'll get into them in a bit. Is there anything uh, you want to add to this production notes? Did you learn anything that, that maybe I left out? I didn't want to jump in while you were giving all of that history. So he was a citizen of the United States because he was born in the United States. Hong Kong at that time was British. It is yes, British territory, yeah. Um, yeah, so so he was not a Chinese citizen. No, no, he's, I mean, I guess I guess you would say that he's, the, maybe he's British citizen. I don't know what that, I don't know. I mean, he, he could have had dual citizenship, but I think he was just an American citizen. Just an American citizen, okay. 
sidebar. Bruce Lee was uh, an American citizen and a British subject and a Chinese person. We've, I, we brought this up not to give Lee a particular place, but to demonstrate that he had like a wide range of really rich cultural influences that affected his art and his ideas about martial arts. Not to claim him for America or Britain or China, but just to kind of set the context of Lee himself. So into the sidebar. I do want to ask about the Hong Kong scene at the time. Were there other films being made at that time in terms of... Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the Kung Fu film was a cult thing in the United States. People watched them, people enjoyed them in this era. But in in Hong Kong, and these films would be released in China as well, they would be much edited. And and Lee was also very popular in mainland China. The Hong Kong film scene was Kung Fu movies, period pieces, they were the rage at this time. For a while, post-World War II, most of the period Kung Fu action pictures in Hong Kong were female leads because a lot of the times the men were working. This is a tidbit about Hong Kong cinema. Men were working and women were going to see the movies or they were at home and doing that stuff. But when they would be done with their home duties, they would go see movies. And it was thought that they didn't want the women to be watching these strapping lads do daring do on the big screen. So they had women be the heroes. And it's not until the late 60s, early 70s when there's more discretionary spending that everybody can go to the movies together that that men start to star in these films in a big way. Well, when did this genre begin in, in Hong Kong and China? Oh, that I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be like Chumbara in Japanese cinema, something that's always been there and in the background. Or like the American Western. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think that that's, those are all fair comparisons and that they've always been around. But these things would, you know, make it to the art houses in the United States and in the, in the major metropolitan areas, you could get some of these films pretty cheap and put them on and, you know, kids liked them. Everybody liked them. Not everybody, but they had a, they had a following. But one of the things that I think Warner Brothers must have seen is that Lee did the action of his films a lot differently than the average Hong Kong kung fu movie. To give an example, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon came out in 73. A few years later, Jackie Chan would make a movie called Fearless Hyena. The boss fight in that, it's about a half hour long of kung fu fighting. Just Jackie Chan and this other, this bad guy that he's fighting. And I mean, it's pretty neat, but it's like a like it's like a half hour dance move, dance, dance sequence in a film. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot for a non-obsessive to watch, right? So distracts from the story, is that what you're implying? No, it's, just, I mean, the distracts from the story is kind of funny with the Fearless Hyena. It's if it's a, some kind of revenge plot. I don't remember what it is. No, it's just a kind of different ethos of filmmaking, I think. Like the Hong Kong audiences and maybe mainland China audience, Chinese audiences really liked the in-depth guy does this move, block, kick, block, you know, this kind of really intricate choreography that takes a long time and you just watch it and it's 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 kind of glorious fights in the bruce lee movies are shorter it's almost like even if he's fighting a bunch of people it, people will run up and it's bam 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 pause it's almost like a, there's a rhythm the fight sequences aren't nearly as long in a bruce lee movie and they're not nearly as in- intricate they're very they're, they're just shorter punchier and even a little more violent i think because of that better for pacing i think that's what i'm getting at i think so oh i absolutely absolutely know i actually saw my first bruce lee movie probably about a year ago Oh, really? What was, it, what was the movie? It, uh, it was Way of the Dragon. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'd kind of like to, to at least mention now the final boss fight of that film Yeah. with uh, Chuck Norris. That's a long one and a very brutal one. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? 
uh, before we dive into this film, which I guess oh. will be the next film. Way of the Dragon. Uh, the, the fight between Chuck Norris and, and Bruce Lee is, is one of the great cinematic martial arts fights. Yeah. All movie fights are too long and, uh, and too clean. You get to see a lot of good movement. But nothing that's too like Bruce Lee fights weren't flowery and or they weren't necessarily graceful. I mean, there is a grace to them, but I see that, yeah. But, but it, it's not it's not kind of the the flowing grace that you would get, say, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is beautiful from start to finish, even when it's being quite violent. Listeners, Max is the is the the fighting expert, so actually, I I, I kind of want to ask you some questions about that about the actor because uh, I agree with you. I you know I, I think you and I saw. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon together. But but you mentioned Jackie Chan, you know, and there's other, there's Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, and, and there's, I have heard opinions that I quite like that Jackie Chan, because I, I, I think I know this for a fact, Jackie Chan uh, was a big fan of Buster Keaton yes. and silent comedy. And certainly a, a lot of his films, uh, many of which listeners or, or, and, and you and I might have seen in the theaters because Jackie Chan was quite, quite big in this country uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s and, and made very, very fun movies that, that are kind of like martial arts comedies yes uh, some of them some of them and i kind of in some of them i kind of felt like that there was more of a a buster keaton aesthetic yes than what we get in this film that we're about to. Well, what absolutely. do you think of that we're, we're approaching enter the dragon at like a 90 degree angle but that's okay well jackie chan i think when he broke away from the kind of long routine fights of say the fearless hyena which i mentioned earlier and got more into and when he had more control to be buster keaton where he would you basically he would create sort of like like Bruce Lee paced fights, but then he would paw, he would break those, he would break up the fighting with stunt work and, yeah. and give, give audiences something different visually. Yes. That, that, that made it, that makes it, that makes an interesting viewing rhythm, you know, fight, fight, fight. And then Jackie Chan does some incredible stunt or, or chase a bunch of maneuvering through the environment. Like right. you watch a Jackie Chan movie and you're like, was he bitten by a radioactive spider at some point? <laughs> he has a different vocabulary of action than Bruce Lee does. And I, and I think I think it's because they both have different interests martial yeah. wise yeah uh, and and different interests film wise they, they want to do different kinds of movies and when when jackie chan was able to embrace that comedic aesthetic i thought his film i think his films get a lot better than his more traditional kung fu con, uh kung, kung fu costume period pieces i think his movies got better uh after that but you're right i think there is a different vocabulary and kind of a different fighting aesthetic screen fighting aesthetic that the two have different acting different yeah, acting yeah, yeah yeah which makes sense they are they are different people and and they come from completely different backgrounds. I mean, Jackie Chan specifically trained at the at the Hong Kong Peking the Peking no the Peking Opera Company, which basically trained stunt performing actors. I mean, it was okay. basically like it was basically a school for training screen fighters. Okay. Whereas, whereas Bruce Lee learned some Tai Chi from his dad, became a pretty serious student of Yip Man, who was a, a important figure in the Kung Fu, the martial art Wing Chun, and he was a he was a student of boxing. And so those were some of the things that he really learned picked up a lot in. In Hong Kong. And then when he came to the United States, he continued to broaden that understanding of martial arts. He took judo from Gene LaBelle, uh, who was a professional wrestler, but also a really amazing judoka. He read a lot about fencing and informed a lot of his ideas about fighting. Bruce Lee was about translating something real about fighting onto the screen because he was interested in really fighting, whereas Jackie Chan was interested in trying to figure out how to make martial arts work in a Buster Keaton movie. And, and I think that, I mean, I think that that's the key difference between those two, both very successful filmmakers but very different i think filmmakers as well any other questions i don't know i don't uh, No, i mean i i, I um i'll hold forth like this all night 
<laughs> I, oh, oh, I, I'm, I, I'm sure you will. This film opens kind of interestingly. It's a cold open, isn't it? It opens on a, on a, on a sparring match. Yes. Well, before we do that, um, I do want to make a comment that's about films generally, and, okay. and this is an odd distraction. This is a film that I watched on uh, Netflix, which is currently streaming, and it might still be streaming by the time this this podcast airs, so people can can watch it readily. But one of the things I was highly gratified to see. This is an aside. Please, please indulge me. The Warner Brothers logo from the early 70s was what was used before the open, before the cold opening that you're talking about. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, with the red background and the, the black almost oval with the, the white W. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to mention that is uh, something that's a bit of a pet peeve of mine lately is that before 1960, usually when you watch an old film, you'll get the original logo that came with the film yes. when it's broadcast. After 1960, maybe 1970, you have certain companies that just take the current logo and just slap it on the beginning of the film. And that annoys the piss out of me, and I hate it. And I really love how Enter the Dragon, as it appears on Netflix, they gave us the Warner Brothers logo from 1973. This is an aside. You guys all indulge me to, to, to rant for a second, and I appreciate it. I appreciated that logo, too. It, it also says Warner Brothers and then in association with Raymond Chow. I have to say, I I, th- I agree with you. I we've, we've touched on this a little bit before when we watched... I think you might, uh, when we watched The Wolfman, you liked the Universal that's what, what We were talking about the, yeah. old, the old Universal logo. But yeah, I mean, I still, I mean, I, I, mean, I think I think you're right. I, I don't like to see the new logos if the film... I don't want to see the new Warner Brothers logo on something that was, you know, made in the 50s. But there's certainly something about that aesthetic that fits with this movie. Yes. And if you had had the new Warner Brothers shield with the WB and the and the crisp, you know, CG title screen, you would lose a certain amount of aliveness that I think yes. that I think that that logo has. I'm glad you went on that rant. I th- I, I totally agree with you, and uh, yeah, okay. so the audience will as well, or they'll stop listening to us and we'll. <laughs> no, I agree completely, and that's something too. Now I don't. You watch it on Netflix. I watch it on Netflix. So with that version, we also get some new scenes that weren't in the theatrical cut. And didn't know that. And I'll touch on those in a bit that I think the addition of them, it's very nice for the legacy of Bruce Lee, who wanted to say some things about martial arts in the film, but that I think kind of detract from the pace a bit, but not so much that I, I would complain about it, because it's it's neat for historical purposes. Sort of like the extra scenes in Aliens that you get, you yeah. know, they're not, they're kind of neat, but they do detract from the pace a little uh, bit. Or, or, or Terminator 2. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, when what you want is a, a thrill ride, Yes, you maybe don't want to drag the pace down with with however neat whatever you're doing is you can you can slow a film down the film opens on a sparring match we don't exactly know why but it's bruce lee and the actor who he's fighting is sammo hung who yeah. is uh, also an important hong kong star who made a made a bl- little bit of a splash in the united states not as big as jackie chan but they were one of like part of that trio of big hong kong stars that was jackie chan sammo hung and yun view those guys would sort of become 
become the it thing in Hong Kong. And Jackie Chan and and Sammo made some success internationally, more, much more so than their 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 Curly, I guess you might say. Yun Bu. That's probably not fair. He might be their Mo. I don't know. You'd have to ask them what they thought of the of that comparison. It's sort of like the first introduction that the world has to mixed martial arts because they grapple in this fight. They do and they do striking, and it's it's kind of a neat little fight. What did you think of this opening act? For an action film, it's a very arresting way to open a film to begin with this fight scene. There's something about the aesthetic of these kind of early 70s films that I quite enjoy. And to begin on this note, because you have all these spectators and you're quite right, it's a location that we don't immediately know where they are or what the context is. We just immediately are greeted with this fight scene. And I think it serves to kind of lasso the viewer and bring them in to see just what, you know, what kind of film they're going to watch. And 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 certainly like most of the fight scenes in the movie, it's it's a pleasure to watch well I, I think so too i mean we, we also get to see this kind of juxtaposition uh, between lee and his opponent who's very capable but doesn't look physically as intimidating as bruce lee does right and but we get to see how capable bruce lee is and this is i think a good introduction to western audiences you know outside the hong kong context outside the mainland china con- context and I, I i do think it's just a great little bam this is this introduces the vi- viewer into the into the movie and so we, we find out at the end of it it's all pretty good willed you know the guy taps out and get up and yeah I, I but but i like that too i mean oh, you know it, yeah and uh and then lee leaves the scene is his you get the sense that there was some kind of tests going on I, the viewer is it's up to the viewer to sort of figure out what was going on here lee leaps over his uh his fellow shaolin warrior guys and they all get a laugh all of the acrobatic stuff that gets done in the film was actually performed by somebody that wasn't bruce lee bruce lee didn't do acrobatics at all so the and the actor who did it i mentioned Sammo Hung and I mentioned uh, Jackie Chan the guy who did his gymnastics stunt work was Yun Bu the, 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 the guy who would also go on to become a big Hong Kong action star and then from there we go to Lee and the Monk meeting Lee and his master Sifu talk don't they and they have, uh, they have a talk about yeah. the fighting philosophy this is a new scene it wasn't in the uh, not a new scene obviously but it's a restored scene it wasn't in the original cut okay I think in the original so so in this scene Lee and, and his Sifu talk Sifu is the, the Chinese term for sensei or teacher or coach the teacher's getting a, a feel for Lee's understanding of martial arts how far has this guy come this, this is my student and I'm going to ask him to go take care of some business that was long overdue which was about we we get introduced to the idea of the Han the bad guy so anyway Lee explains his philosophy of martial arts and his Sifu says well this is good I know uh, you don't want to go to this tournament but we need you to go to this tournament because there's only one person that I've ever trained that decided to use my my tools for for, for evil and I want you to go fucking kick his ass that's not what he says but but Lee you know Lee agrees to that and when that leads to the meeting with the British secret agent who works for a shady organization well, but uh, just to back up for a second I mean, I, you know, you introduced the idea of pacing mm-hmm. about this and about this new restored scene, which is basically Bruce Lee talking about philosophy behind his martial arts. This is a scene I really enjoyed yeah. uh, so much that it's not until this very moment that I re- 
realize that it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Oh, no, 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 no. None of it, none of it ever comes up again. Well, now that's not exactly true because in the scene, the, the guy says Han relies a lot on illusion and you need to break. Oh, the- right, all right. Yeah, okay. That's right. That's right. Now, it's not necessary to what Lee figures out later on. And in the theatrical cut, they don't touch on any of it. You're right. They don't touch on any of this again in the theatrical. They don't touch on it at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the theatrical cut, Braithwaite is the one who recruits him to do the tournament. The, the Sifu has nothing to do with it. Yeah. But, but in, in the scene, he, he talks about how Han uses illusion uh, to confuse his opponents and you got to break through the illusion to beat him. And that has a nice rebound in this in this cut. It's not necessary, but, you know, it is nice to get, as a fan of Bruce Lee, uh, most fans want these scenes because we have, we don't have all the movies of Bruce Lee that we, we should have gotten. No, that's right. And, and um, I think it's a really good scene. I, I quite enjoyed it. The in, in terms of the pacing that you were talking about, I was not disturbed by it at all. Good, good. Um, and so then we leap ahead. Well, first we leap to the credits, right? Yes, 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 yes. So after that, then we get, I think we get the Bruce Lee battle cry and title card, Enter the Dragon. And this is where we start meeting the other characters. Yeah, and and we get the, the groovy Lalo Schifrin music, which now, I, I quite like. This, I, I mean, right away, the score grabs you. Now, I guess he did a lot of, uh, this, this, this composer did a lot of jazzy scores but for this Warner Brothers was really anticipating what would be called the black exploitation era yeah. this was not I, this was all organic to this film and not, I don't think anybody was aiming for black exploitation but say the composer's name again Paulo Schifrin okay he really incorporated a lot of elements of funk yep. into the into the this almost it, it almost seems when I listen to this soundtrack while I'm watching the movie uh this score I almost think that this is this is always playing in Quentin Tarantino's head <laughs> Yes. You know? Yes. And, and, but it also it tries to incorporate, uh, this is really subtle, but it also incorporates a lot of traditional Chinese it's stuff. Re- it's very, very well done. Moves without with without the film. seeming exploitative. Absolutely. It moves with the film very well. It's almost a subtle character of everything that we see, but never overdoes it. it, it it's a great score. You know, it, we'll just kind of get that out of the way now. And, yeah. And, well, yeah. And, and it's in this, so after that, we get the, like I said, the title card and we start getting introduced to people. That, the first pe- person we get introduced to his Roper played by John Saxon. John Saxon was a fairly popular actor in the 70s. He also had a black belt in judo and Shotokan karate. So he he was an actual martial artist, though he yeah. was much more well known for being an actor. Now, I didn't know much about him except this film and I think the first installment of, of Nightmare on Elm Street. He's the dad. Yeah. What, what would you say about Roper? Roper's a very interesting character. Uh, we first meet him on the golf course. Yeah. I think there were one of the, the main the main characteristic that we learn about Roper, I think, right away is that he cannot run away from a bet. No, no. Uh, he loves to make bets. Uh, he's playing golf. He has to walk away from the game and is immediately accosted by a, a group of baddies uh, who talk about money that he owes, that that, that, that he owes. And uh, he dispenses with them pretty quickly. Yes, he does. And and and, 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 and this is a really, really good scene because it, it establishes what a capable guy he is. It establishes his temperament, his personality, Personality, the problems that he gets himself into that, that the film's not necessarily going to dig deep into. No, no. But is, yeah. But, but this scene does, the this, this scene where he gets accosted by the, the 
mafia henchman. It stands in for a lot of character development that we're not going to get to see. It fills in his backstory. One of the things we get right away too is that like Roper, even these guys who are coming to take his money, they all like him. Yeah. The mob boss who wants his money from the guy likes him. Right. We got to do this. Freddie says it's for your own good. <laughs> now this guy who is the main henchman, by the way, trivia note, is Pat E. Johnson. He was the main fight choreographer for the Karate Kid movies. Okay. All right. And, uh, yeah. And he's the re- he's one of the main referees in the in the in the final tournament in Karate Kid. Um, and for some reason now the the theme music of that from the tournament <laughs> in Karate Kid is in my head. But anyway, he's in it. Uh, he, he did the fight choreography. Very capable martial artist, very good karate guy. We see Roper dispatch them. One of the things I like about this Roper stuff is that like Roper's an interesting guy. He sees the lay of the land pretty well, but you're right. He can't, he doesn't make a lot of good personal decisions, even when he is seeing how things are, how, 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 how things lie. Right. Yeah. Uh, very charming. He seems, to, he has a secretary, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, uh, who receives a call for him. Yep. From a golf cart on a phone that clearly didn't exist in 1973. <laughs> well, uh, so here I have to actually begin to uh, make a comparison that I made beginning with this scene and throughout film that, that Enter the Dragon is kind of a, a, a nexus where several genres kind of meld together and that would be the black exploitation genre which was just beginning. Yep. The Kung Fu genre which as you were saying it was mainly a kind of a Hong Kong staple at the time and the James Bond series. Yes. And Rope Roper is kind of kind of a Bond-like character. Yes. Uh, he's playing golf. He gambles. He, he's very capable in a fight. He's, well, all of our protagonists are, are good with the ladies, all, uh, although William's a little more so. I began to feel that vibe yes. during this golf scene. Well, I mean, it took me a while to notice this because I was I, I always looked at it as from a martial arts point of view uh, as a martial artist myself. This is a, a spy movie. Bruce Lee is recruited by some British intelligence gathering organization right yeah. and uh roper is probably a guy who was rejected by the by mi6 because yeah. while, while you're right he does a lot of things like bond he doesn't do them as well as bond except no he does the fighting yeah but so we we get introduced to him and he's a delightful guy we like him right yeah, away. yeah. um and then the, the the next protagonist is jim kelly uh, who plays williams williams uh he's a african-american karate expert uh kelly was a last minute replacement for another guy who backed out two days before production started. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, I, I might cut it in as a sidebar, but it's not really important. But he, for some reason, he backed out. Didn't, you know, no call, no show. Yeah. And, and they scrambled because Jim Kelly was an accomplished karate guy. He was in LA and they quickly and hastily got, made a meeting and, and hired him right, you know. Well, that, oil. they got lucky. He, he's he's really, really good. He's got a great presence. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and totally is, is, more capable than Roper, I yeah. think that we see. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Now, returning to production notes, this was intentional, by the way. Um, this is going to really aggravate the the politically, the anti-political correct, anti-woke crowd because yeah. they intentionally wanted to have a movie that was that starred an Asian person. 
usually uh, a white guy and a black guy as our trio of heroes and they because they wanted to appeal to the widest possible audience there's nobody in 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 the world who won't see themselves in these heroes right yeah, yeah. Um, for the most part you know uh i probably just aggravated indians in india oh no there was we weren't in there why wouldn't why didn't we have a hero but um you know but but the film really tried to include everybody uh and, and certainly from an american context i mean this is this was a brilliant choice but, you know uh but there's also like a lot of you know a lot of different uh asian groups that gravitated towards lee too uh chinese and japanese americans really like seeing him because he he bucked the traditional depiction of asian um, asian people in films he wasn't the sick man the the, the quote-unquote sick man of asia you know uh or well, he wasn't wilting or anything like that you know he was a very capable action hero but you also have these other two guys that that all kind of come together pretty well in the film i think yeah you know um and so but anyway williams uh He's going. He's going to the tournament. He's leaving from where is he? Some Chicago, New York. I don't know. I can't remember where he's leaving from. But yeah. uh, he he runs into trouble on his way out of town. Uh, not a, a different kind of trouble than Roper. Uh, he doesn't invite like Roper is the author of all of his own troubles. <laughs> right. Um. And uh, uh, Williams isn't. He gets accosted by two racist cops, and they try and uh, they they say some mean. Uh, they use they don't use the worst word, but they do they do they do use some racial epithets at him, and they're uh, not nothing dated about the scene by the way seriously seriously well, like no this, um, well, yeah. i was watching this film and i was like well boy this film feels like it could have been made in this era yeah like we've got i was just thinking about this today well we've got racism we've got some misogyny from uh the uh, the uh, which is coupled with our human trafficking elements we've got yes we've got, yes. A, we've got an opioid business going on you know uh, you know so so i mean there's there's a bunch of crazy shit that seems really relevant for today yes um, uh and so, but unlike a lot of people, these cops accost, uh, Williams is quite capable of handling uh, and stopping their would-be attempt at police brutality. <laughs> he busts these guys up pretty bad. And one he of does. my favorite bits about that is the first guy like pulls out his nightstick and he breaks it and then gives the guy some uh, good old karate justice and then throws him through a fence. And then a fucking German shepherd runs up and starts biting this officer while he's on the ground. And I thought, that's right. That's fair. That's for what this guy was going to do. I mean, these guys were going to try and break him up so he couldn't go to Hong Kong on a vacation. They didn't know what he was doing. For no reason. For no reason other than the one that matters the least, that he's black, right? And uh, and then he steals their car and I presume drove to the airport in it, um, right. which I thought was funny. But so 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 that's how Roper and, and Williams end up in, in uh, Hong Kong. Um, so we get their backstory and then we, I think before that we get Lee's backstory because the, the, the opening is like several different flashback scenes which generally don't work for me, but I really like this because I think we even get some of the wavy lines that indicate we're going back in time. So before I think we get the Roper Williams introduction, Bruce Lee's dad, Lee's dad says, "I want to tell you what really happened to your sister." Yeah. And then we get we get our our second major action sequence, I think, which is his sister. Well, um, I think first he gets the mission. Mm -mm. Um, uh, yeah, he gets the mission, he... which is I, I, oh, we got to backtrack a little bit after the after the Sifu Lee discussion. We get Braithwaite recruiting. Lee. What he 
he's told is that there is this character named Han. Now, would that have been in the theatrical cut? This is in. The, this is all in the theatrical cut. Everything no, with Wade is in the theatrical cut. No, no, I know that. But but the scene that we were talking about, where Lee told by his teacher about this former member of the that, temple, that I would that have been? I don't think that happens in the. No, that doesn't happen. He doesn't get. I don't think he gets to gets that information about Han through the through his teacher. I don't think that happens. It's been a while, but I don't. I actually don't remember that character in the in the theatrical cut. Okay, um, so so he discovers that there's this there's this figure who has his own island, and and he's suspected of uh, engaging in sex trafficking. Yes, uh, because there are women that disappear. They're given drugs. They're given heroin. This actually, to me, this scene feels to me like two things. Yep. Uh, it feels like a James Bond scene. It, it, oh, it feels yeah. like M giving Bond a, a mission. And 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 the character Braithwaite is a uh, a British actor. Yeah. Hong Kong was a British Colony. colony. Uh, at the time so you know that's that's all correct it also and let me run this by you it, it also felt a little bit like the big sleep oh because big uh, the big sleep is about sexual exploitation yep, yep. and and then you have this older man giving marlo giving him his mission yeah, yeah. And, and and the reason i make that comparison is that lee's not a spy no. he's a member of the temple yeah, yeah and so so in in this context he's more like a private eye well yeah you, yeah, see, yeah. What I, you see what i'm saying absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, so the scene kind of doubled for me, both those both those things. But he's told that this organization, they don't really work for anybody. They just collect the information and then they pass it on to some sovereign nation to take care of business. Interesting so, parties. In, interesting parties. So, uh, so Lee and, and Lee is told that there is a radio on the island. Nice to know. And then if he, the, and, if he, and, he, and he says, on the chance you can get to it, we'll, we'll be listening. <laughs> and then right, so... Oh, somebody will come. <laughs> right, right. I think that it's kind of built into the viewer that Lee is on his own. It's not that there are not interested parties. There are. Yes. But there's not a lot of commitment. No. Uh, he, he's he's being asked to go in and collect information because they're they're very certain of what's going on. Because, well, because like he says, so what do you know? Well, we know everything. We can prove yeah. nothing. They're recruiting him. Like he's going anyway. And mm -hmm. the, this organization is like, well, you know, why don't you why don't you do this while you're there and you can help us stop something big? Because it sounds to me like if they get the evidence that they need, the British will stop on that island as quick as you can say on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Right. You know, right. but they, they can't prove anything because the, the a lot of his island is on international waters, but some of it is in is, is in British waters. And so yeah. which they talk about. But one of the things I really dig in the scene is the the old eight millimeter footage they have of Han and. And his henchman, Ohara. This is just such classic kind of noir filmmaking where Han is, it's black and white, it's kind of grainy footage, and Han is about to get in his car and they and they 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 yes. freeze, they freeze the image. And I'm like, oh, this is so glorious. This is Han, this is the only known footage we have of him. And it's just a bit blurry, but this this the way they've shot it and the way they do it, the character looks very intriguing. We want to know more about him. We can yes. hear, we can kind of see they've built him up enough that we can kind of see this guy's bad. Yeah. yeah. And then he and then the, the film starts up again and then Han in his car and it's like and this is his uh his main enforcer his champion on the island which is a guy named O'Hara played by Bob Wall who was one of Chuck Norris's early black belts he was one of the bad guys in Way of the Dragon he was the he was one of the two guys that Lee fought before getting to Chuck Norris yeah. uh 
uh, Bob Wall returned, uh, worked with Lee again for this film. And uh, so, and then they freeze on him and he's got like this giant scar down his face. And they're like, I don't know where he picked up the scar, but he's 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 somebody dangerous. And he's like, we have some footage of him. And they show him doing, they show uh, O'Hara breaking boards, having boards broken on him. And Braithwaite's quite impressed. These are all real bricks and boards. Nothing fake here. Sure you won't have a drink? No thanks. But so we, we learned that O'Hara is, is Han's number one guy. We don't know where he picked up the facial scale, uh, but which he has. And Lee Lee offers some really great questions here. Is like, well, why didn't somebody just take a forty-five and bang, settle it? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and and this is some neat backstory that that uh, well, I don't know if it's backstory. I have a story that I've concocted. Uh, you probably concocted it too. Where he's like, well, you know, uh, uh, if we thought there were guns on that island, we would we would storm that island immediately. We would, yeah. they're, they're interested parties that, because weapons are illegal in this area. Besides, Han wouldn't have guns on the island. He had a, we had a nasty experience with them and any bloody fool can pull a trigger and he fears assassination. He says something like that, Braithwaite does. And I think that the experience that he had was some, a gun might've blown up in his hand or something like that. And that's why he doesn't have them on the island. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right yeah. We'll get more into that in a bit audience, but I think that's why he doesn't, he doesn't have guns. Yeah. 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 And maybe why he gravitated towards the martial arts so much, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Braithwaite lays out the, the support he's going to give Lee, which is, I can't remember how much support were they going to give Lee on, how much support did his organization have for Lee? Um, nothing. Uh, none. Yes, yes, none. Um, uh, but, he, but he does offer, you know, electronics and stuff like that. And Lee is like, so if I get to the radio, you make a phone call. Basically. Yeah. I guess I won't yeah. need anything then. <laughs> I want to ask you about... Bruce Lee as an actor, yeah, as an action hero, as a presence. What do you think? Starting with this scene, yep. what do you think? I like him a lot, actually. I think he's really quite good. Um, this wasn't his first scene that he shot. The first scene that he shot happens later, and Robert Klaus basically had to shoot around him for a couple days because Enter the Dragon was the most important thing that happened to Lee as an artist. Oh, certainly, yeah. He was so nervous when he started filming, he actually had trouble delivering his lines because he was, he was just waiting for the rug, I guess, to be pulled out from under him. He was really worried that things he was worried about being good he was worried about doing the art that he wanted to do and he, he had a lot of trouble but after a couple of days he seemed to it seemed to iron out and i'll tell you when that happens as we go on but when those scenes were that he was shooting and, and klaus had to kind of shoot around him a little bit but here he's been shooting for a while and i thought that he was quite good in it i i, I like the way he acted i mean he does have kind of a thick accent which was one of the things that made hollywood a little nervous about him early on but i think he's a great presence from the fight scene to the talking with his his Sifu to interacting with Braithwaite. What did you think? No, I agree. I I, I think that he has a a really good kind of action glare. Like, you know, like, I mean, one of my favorite action glares is uh, Charles Bronson in Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. And and there's some... Hold on, hold on. That was just Charles Bronson's face. (laughs) Well, but look, okay, but, but, but it it, it was, it it was really good. And, uh, and great action heroes have to have that. They do. And I think that he has that as the film goes on, there's a little, uh, there's some sarcastic looks. Yeah. Uh, there's some looks of humor that that almost are, are are kind of prefiguring kind of the Jackie Chan kind of presence that you were talking about earlier. 
that would happen later in cinematic well, history. Well, there was some of that, that there was some of that kind of like something that they had to work on this with Lee and that he had to work on with himself a lot. Okay. Sometimes what Chinese audiences really liked was that big, bold, almost melodramatic stuff. There's a scene later on where, where John Saxon's getting ready to fight somebody and Lee just kind of does, like he crosses his arms and does a little sarcastic shake of his yeah. head. But that was that Hong Kong mode of acting kind of kicking in that, that was sometimes hard to break him of uh, completely. And so you'll see him resort to some of that in the film, but that's part of it. That was part of his acting toolbox. I know what you're talking about. I like now were American audiences jarred by that? I wasn't. Well, if you if you see watch watch the big boss, watch Fist of Fury, there's a way that he exaggerates his swagger that would that will catch your eye. But it's this really over it's like this, it's almost like it's I, I it's not this, but it it seems that, that swagger that he sometimes has seems as big as John Travolta's swagger in staying alive, you know. I mean you notice it right away. And yeah. if that's not what you're going for, you know, it's a it's a little jarring but i think he's great in in most of the action sequences especially when he's toning his hong kong acting down uh okay. that's just me i mean i think that i think they're two different visual idioms of acting you know uh but go so, ahead so well so in this scene though he's re- receiving the mission and uh and as i watched it i thought okay so in his mind what is he trying to do or what is he being directed to? um it, he's trying to be sean connery oh. uh, n- not not in emoting yeah. but just in sitting back and taking in the mission yeah. And and um, you know not being intimidated by anything that he's seeing, which now everybody does. Yeah. yeah. But um, but at that time in 1973, when this film was shot, um, you know we have to try to remember that Sean Connery really was a a uh, co- yeah. the action guy, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he was the action actor uh, in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and and the Bond films were popular uh, overseas then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were popular in Japan. They were popular in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, they were popular films. Sean Connery was a popular figure. An international film star. Yeah. And and I feel like that as I watched it, I was okay. That's what they're going for here. And, and I did read that that there was some thought that Way of the Dragon might be a rival. Series. Enter the Dragon, I think, is what you mean to say. Uh, yes, Enter the Dragon. A- Enter the Dragon was, um, I misspoke. Enter the Dragon was, th- there was a thought that it could be a rival, th- that it could be the first of a rival series yeah. in the 007 film. Well, I mean, if you look at the success of the film, I mean, it performed as well as any James Bond film, box office wise. If, yes. If, if, if the adjustments that we make are correct, I mean, it it outperformed a lot of movies that year. I think had we not lost Bruce Lee, we definitely would have seen more of this character and there would have been more of these films. Just pause for a second here. And I suppose we're prefiguring our verdict a little bit. Bruce Lee would have been in a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. There are many things that he could have done. I, I just, yeah, I was just watching this and I was just like, you know, it's it's a shame that we lost him. I think he was building a, a strong legacy of action films, you know, that, that that would have would have been pretty profound for the for the industry. I think. I think he had an amazing physique. Yep. Um, and he... a great presence as we're as we're seeing, even in this film, even in this scene here where he's in a suit and interacting without relying on that physicality right and, and, and he's just reacting to uh to what he's being given he had a sense of humor mm-hmm. um he he um a great deal of charisma very likable oh yeah a, a, a handsome individual he had leading man good looks absolutely like he really did I, I i agree with you bruce lee is that figure now yeah yeah but it's more you know 
this kind of um, this kind of realization of the body of work that he did, yeah. and kind of teasing out of that what could have been, and being inspired by it, that his legacy in, inspired all of these actors and directors and to create films and anime and and video games and all of these things based on what his brief career was. Yeah. But what could his career have been yeah. if he had been this action hero who who was in films in the eighties and maybe even into the nineties? It's a counterfactual. We just we can only play in. We can only play in counterfactuals. Yeah. This scene, he gets the mission handles it very well as an actor but it's i think it's just a great scene it's a great way to exposit without without dragging the movie down without slowing the pace even with the extra scenes this is really i think that the storytelling in this movie is just phenomenal i oh i totally agree i totally agree i i, I actually as i said when you talked about the extra scenes i think the pacing's perfect and it's only when you mentioned that those were extra scenes yeah. that i was even oh i guess they are a little out of place even with them the storytelling the way they pay out i mean the way we get introduced to the three main characters it's efficient without being lazy yes the film starts with establishing that lee which is his character's name in this yeah. film is is the member of this temple and that he's an expert fighter yeah. and he's given some background about this former uh member of the temple who's kind of fallen from grace then we move forward and he gets this he gets the mission and then it's only after when he's on his way to to the island yeah that we have a flashback scene in which we discover what he was told. The film doesn't just throw the whole story at us in one scene. It, it plays it out. It, it continuously reels us in until we get to the main body of the story. Yes, and yes. Really the, this is really the interesting part of this film, I think. Lee has an honor mission given to him by the Shaolin monk, his teacher. He has a professional ethical obligation given to him by the British Intelligence Agency. And now he's about to get a personal motive for pursuing Han. But he also learns that his connections to this Han guy are a little deeper even than he than he knew because yes. his because his dad who he, he calls his dad old man all the time which is I think it's kind <laughs> of endearing I don't know why I kind of like it but but um uh every once in a while I don't know if my dad even notices it I I call him old man sometimes oh, tell me about it old man you know and uh <laughs> pay attention to me when I'm ribbing him too much but anyway but he's like well look I want to tell you what really happened to your sister and that and this is another great Lee kind of wakes up and he's like well what do you mean what what happened to my sister like i would like to know what what old man told him yeah because maybe you do not tell a guy like lee what really happened if you if you want to keep him from going to jail but now right. he's going to a place where maybe that those legal ramifications of running hog wild on 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 somebody are going to be less right and we get another flashback of his sister and her father their father kind of minding their own business in hong kong when ohara and a bunch of han's henchmen try to get touchy feely with her yes and the old man tries to keep her keep her safe and really delivers a kind of frightening blow to to ohara because he sneaks out a knife and we don't even they don't even make a big deal out of it he slices down and i what i really like about this because there's some there's some reality to it ohara steps back and he holds his face we didn't see the contact we didn't hear the contact there was no stupid sound effect yeah the knife went flying by and we think from our angle oh the old man missed but when ohara looks up i mean there's a there's blood everywhere he's been he's been nailed and right. then sadly old man gets nailed pretty bad too he gets beat mm. up sulen she gives she gives a great effort not initially in running away 
No, no, um, no, not initially in running away. No, that's that is one of the. If maybe she had listened to old man and ran, they wouldn't have caught her. But but she she does beat a lot of these guys up. Yes, Sulin gets cornered. I don't want to dwell too much on this. I, if you haven't seen this, folks, this is a pretty harrowing scene. But the the fight choreography is very good. Sulin is a great actress. She doesn't do much, obviously, run for her life and fight for her life. Sidebar. I just want to take a moment and give the actress who plays Su, Su Lin some credit here. She was actress named Angela Mao, sometimes billed as Mao Lin Ying and sometimes Anya, Angela Mao Ying. She was a Hong Kong star. She was she starred in several classic Kung Fu films that make the best of lists for a lot of Kung Fu film aficionados. Kung Fu Lady, Hapkido, Broken Oath, Deadly China Doll. She was she was an important player in this in this world of Hong Kong action cinema. And uh, if you get a chance to see some of the films that she starred in, I think you should definitely do it. She's a great presence and she's a, a, a great martial artist. So into the sidebar. For some reason, these guys aren't letting it go. I mean, they clearly want to sexually assault Su Lin, despite the fact she is handing them ass whooping after ass whooping. And we're getting <laughs> Wilhelm scream after Wilhelm scream as these people go flying off of like, I mean, she's really hurting a lot of these henchmen. Maybe they should have cut and run, but but she gets cornered and Su Lin, instead of submitting to these guys, she kills herself. Um, yeah. Spoilers, but I mean, you guys knew this when you started listening to the podcast. And this is this is kind of a neat moment. Lee hears this story and he turns after he hears the story and you can see that he's been crying, but yeah. he's, not, he's not like uncontrollably sobbing. He's just kind of trying to keep himself together. And, uh, and he doesn't even try and wipe his tears away though, but like his father's like, you know, you, before you go to the island, pay your respect to your mother and your sister at the, at the graveyard. I think and he does. That, yeah, he does. He does. I thought that this scene was really well done. There's no recriminations. I mean, these two, one of the things I get from this scene is that he and his dad have a pretty good relationship and, and Lee does trust his father. I think his father was saving this for when it would be something he could tell Lee without putting his other kid at risk unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Right, I think this, I mean, this is me filling in backstory, but that's kind of what you do with noir films, which is also is kind of that. Not quite a noir, but when when he says, you know, pay your respects, he's I will, old man, I will. What did you think of the graveyard scene? This is I I noticed this. I really focused on this today, but I want to know what you thought of the scene at the graveyard. I guess the thing that I was thinking about was, but it, but it felt kind of western to me. Gotcha. Um, is that a British influence? I don't know. Well, what, um, what I noticed is that it, all the graves are very close together in this graveyard. It seems to me because okay. most of the people in them are ashes because you don't have a lot of space and oh okay yeah, it makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah well i thought what he was i thought what he said to his dead relatives was pretty poignant because he basically asked his mother for forgiveness for what he's about to go do for what he's about to do yeah and he said because it's because it's against what you and everything that su lin believed um which maybe was something about vengeance but there's something going on too that's as he's saying this to her he keeps being distracted by this person sweeping the leaves off the sidewalk clearing the path i didn't know if we were supposed to derive some kind of symbolism from this is it supposed to be deep i mean we're we supposed to see some deeper meaning like why is why is this person why does he keep getting distracted i i, I felt like the director wanted us to make some connection with this person's feet in the broom sweeping the leaves off the path and lee continuing to notice it i don't know what the director was trying to do there I'm not, i don't think there's a director's cut on my dvd i mean a director's commentary on my dvd i would i, I think bob klaus is dead too the the director of the film so maybe he wouldn't have done that that comment Commentary. I, I wondered if there was something to that. I didn't know if you noticed it. I guess you didn't. No, I, I did, but I just didn't think anything of it. When, when you've seen this film more than a hundred times, you start noticing what, what I'm supposed to notice this. Maybe there's nothing to it. Audience, if you have an idea about this, please feel free to 
let us know what you think. But then he leaves with a little curt bow and then it's all back to the boats. Maybe that's when we get some more backstories. We find out too as they're getting on the boats that Roper sees Williams in the boat and clearly we know that he knows Williams. They're, they're friends. They were, I guess, Vietnam buddies together. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. In another life, they might have ended up on a Hawaiian island where Williams flew <laughs> helicopters and <laughs> Roper was a private eye. Audience, maybe you get that reference. <laughs> They're really happy to see each other. And I really bought their friendship. What do you think? Oh, totally. And in fact, all the way through, I actually almost felt like that, um, even though they haven't seen each other, I think they say in six years. Yeah. But I feel like that they they resurrect their, their friendship very quickly because in several scenes going forward, they're able to communicate just with a nod or a look. We kind of get the sense that they've, they've been through some things together. They definitely uh, are able to kind of pick up where they left off. I think this is Jim Kelly's first movie. They do this really well. And throughout the throughout the scene, throughout these early scenes, we've been seeing what a what a shameless materialist Roper is. Because when he's getting on the plane and on the boat, he has more suitcases than the royal family. Yeah, I, I noticed that, and I wondered I wondered what that was supposed to to. Well, I, uh, okay, I, go ahead. I just think that we're supposed to get that he lives large. He wants everybody to think that he lives large. It's partly an image thing. I think he wants to show people that he's a man of means and he likes to have fine things. So I assume that there are, he wants people to think there are a lot of fine things in those suitcases. They might all be empty. He is a bit of a con man. Oh, which will, um, he'll be accused of that in a few minutes because you're quite right. We also know that actually probably when it comes to his gambling habit, he's, he's, he's kind of in the red. Yes, yes, yes. Because when he leaves, he's like, how much money do I have left in the bank account? And his secretary says $63. He said, well, you can keep it. <laughs> she's like, well, I think you're going to need it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's he's a guy living on the on the bleeding edge of success or failure all the time. Right. Williams is like, are these all yours, man? And he's like, you know me. I like to live large. When they talk a little bit about Han, they're kind of, they kind of start sharing intelligence about what they know. What do you know about this guy? Not much. Yada, yada, yada. I know he likes to live large. And then we see Roper, uh, not Roper, but we see Williams kind of be like, they don't live so large, <laughs> you know. And he kind of talks about like, uh, you know, like ghettos are the same all over the world. They yeah. And Roper says because they have this thing, same old Roper, same old Williams. I mean, I think they can get back into that friendship so well because they're they're basically the same people that they were in '68 or '69 or right, or '67 right. or whenever they left Vietnam together. They're the same guys. Lee's a question mark in their assessment of things where they're looking at different fighters. They know some of the people on the boat. You know that that guy's really good. That guy's really good. What do you know about that guy? they point out to Lee is like, I don't know. I've never heard of him. never seen him before. I want to say something about Roper that we'll see from here on out. Despite the fact that he's a terrible gambler, he does understand people pretty well. And he sees almost immediately in Lee, somebody he can trust. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a neat moment where some of the boat hands are having a praying mantis fight. I think they're having praying mantises fight each other. And and Roper is is uh, a little bit too eager yes. to make a wager with Lee. Yes, yes. They uh, have the bet. Of course, Lee's praying mantis wins. And I think that this is when we get Roper's line of suckered again or something like that. Yeah. If Lee had survived, that was probably going to be a Roper tagline in the future installments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they kind of hit it off. They don't really dwell on this too much because the acting chemistry is really good with all the our heroes. There is the, I think, fairly substantial uh, scene where um, Lee is, is accosted by one of the other, uh, I think, prospective fighters and wants to know about his fight 
fighting style, yeah. you know, which is fighting without fighting. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you know, and he kind of insists, and, he, you know, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. And, and then he says, um, no, you, you know, you need to do that. He said, well, you know, there's not enough room here, but that Island over there. Lee, Lee says this, Lee says, well, why don't we go to yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, you know, we'll, we'll get on this boat. We'll go over to the Island and then I'll show you how I'll fight you. The guy gets out on the boat and Lee immediately, he does not follow him into the boat and he begins he begins uh kind of taking the rope and and, and kind of putting him out to sea and then he gives the rope to some of the some of the crew of the ship who, who the guy's been bullying yeah yeah and and they and they immediately start to try to to basically drown him by by sinking the ship yeah so so yeah well so we get to see some cleverness from lee he avoids a fight on the ship fighting without fighting now side note trivia note the actor who gets on the boat uh you know he, he makes a play of like trying to pull the rope up and trying to pull the lifeboat or whatever that is back to the ship. Lee says, don't do that. I'll let the rope go. And the boat starts to fill with water. Yeah. This was a complete accident. Really? It wasn't intended. It wasn't when he was doing his acting, he put too much weight in the front of that and it started to fill with water. He gamely keeps acting while the boat's sinking around him, but they were, I guess, immediately putting the rafts in the water to go say, to go, to go pick him up, you know? But I thought that was kind of funny. It, it works in the scene too, so. Oh, it, it, it works because it creates for the viewer we put ourselves in his place and he's he's been suckered in yes and, and he's about to drown yeah, yeah and that's the fighting without fighting so i think the scene works better i didn't know it was an accident i would not have thought that that's the end of the drama on the boat as our heroes are approaching the island roper sees the woman of his dreams uh, played by anna capri she plays tanya she's sort of the madam of the island i think yes and this is where we get some amusing dialogue between Roper and Lee where he's like, oh, look at that. A woman like that could teach a man a lot about himself and Lee is kind of amused that yeah. even though they're all going into this dangerous situation, Roper doesn't have his mind on, on the gambling. <laughs> <laughs> you know um, anyway I, I just thought that was kind of an, it's not much of a moment but I think it's another one of those moments where we see Lee being brought into that Roper Williams friendship a little bit now, he, now Lee doesn't get many scenes with Williams but I get the sense that they would have all been a, a pretty nice trio I mean I mean uh, upon first viewing I expected that there would be that trio and as we'll see in our discussion that never really materialized no but we want it to materialize oh, at, oh totally it, it doesn't affect the film no no no, uh, but, no but but i was a little disappointed that we didn't get it well I, and i think what happens makes the film harrowing in a way that it wouldn't have been if it had been that as, is true if it had given us what we wanted it wouldn't have been as harrowing true more on that in a minute audience madame tanya says well welcome to the island the banquet starts promptly at six and then we get this really fun very colorful scene of of the banquet han is throwing his fighters a giant party there's sumo wrestlers yeah. there's acrobats there's all kinds of great food it's kind of it's it's it, it, and it's got like this traditional kind of chinese music that's being played my only complaint about the scene really is that okay for your budget i don't care how small it was you could have at least gotten two realistic looking sumos instead of two guys i want <laughs> that don't quite do it that are a little they're not I, 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 <laughs> they're not big i wondered if it was just me yeah, that, yeah. yeah. 
no, I was just like, nah, nah, you, you needed some better sumos, you know, uh, but just not complaint. And we get some more of this Roper character development. Well, not really character development. We see the character of Roper. He seems to be enjoying himself. He sees Lee across the room and they have a kind of a little nod and Roper is in his element. There are these beautiful women on either side of him, but he, <laughs> you see him say to one of them, excuse me. And he goes and talks to Lee. He and Lee have this really wonderful moment where Roper is kind of going a roundabout way of trying to see if Lee is as suspicious of the situation as he is. Roper immediately sees that there's something up with this whole tournament yeah. because you know, he's fought in tournaments before. You get that sense. You get the sense they all have. Lee says, well, you look like you're really enjoying it yourself. And he's like, well, yeah, I like to live large. And you know, this is this Han guy really knows how to throw a party. And then Lee, who understands Roper pretty well, is like, well, why, are you, why do you look so apprehensive then? And Roper has a really funny line. It was like, I'm just wondering if you think it's okay to drink the water. <laughs> You know, they both are suspicious. That's what we get out of this situation. And then Roper goes and talks to William. Well, well I, that was another great the, scene. The the scene you were just talking about. That's uh, when Lee says, "Don't try to con me." <laughs> yeah. And and of course Roper yeah. said, "Want to bet?" <laughs> but then but then uh, and so roper i think has an instinctive sense that lee is a trustworthy guy uh but he still kind of couches his dialogue when he goes and talks to williams there's nothing there's no subterfuge yeah. no testing the waters he's just like uh this is crazy isn't it there's no you ever been yeah, to a tournament like yeah. this and williams is like nope and then roper says well you know we better we better get to know the referees you know what i mean these three guys are immediately suspicious of all this which i think is kind of cool of course lee is suspicious because he was briefed because he knows what's going on exactly they're suspicious because they're both martial artists and they know there's no money at all in competing in tournaments you pay to go compete in tournaments for a 50 cent medal so this seems this is seems too good to be true for all these guys but yeah. when we get this cool gong and han and his his guard come in which are these women and they do this fancy stuff with the darts uh, where they where han will throw an apple up in the air and one of his his most elite guard will throw a dart at the thing and somebody will catch it hopefully no accidents happen hopefully like what if one of these girls missed one of these women missed one of the one of the uh fruit the bodies of fruit and the 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 dart just hit some poor waitress in the <laughs> that would have been pretty funny but yeah. we forgot to mention that lee was told that they have an agent there is an agent on the island who works for the the british organization yeah and they don't i don't think they know what's happened to her no they're, they're like well, we haven't heard from her for a little while but yeah. she, there she throws she shoots her dart up in the air and that's the one that Lee catches and he pulls the he pulls her little dart out of the apple I think he even takes a bite out of the apple in a very dramatic action hero kind of way but so earlier I alluded to Robert Klaus having to shoot around Lee this was the scene where he was he was having trouble delivering his dialogue this was the first scene he shot and Klaus just kind of let him get used to being in front of the camera and okay. it was in these in, in this scene and, uh, and like I said things ironed out obviously it's also kind of cool too when the gong goes off and Han enters all of the people who are performing for the fighters freeze they don't move while Han is delivering his welcome speech and while the women do their tricks then the gong happens again Han leaves and then the the entertainment the, the people unfreeze themselves and yeah. the utter respect they have for Han and we'll see it's it's pretty reasonable to not fail Han right uh, so everybody goes back to their rooms and we and we get folks what happens next has never happened to me at any martial arts tournament I've ever been to and that is when madam tanya 
excited I've crippled Jason with some laughter here. Madam Tanya seems to be visiting all of the fighters and asking what lady of the evening would they like to have join them? And folks, that's never happened to me at any tournament. <laughs> so, I mean, if it's happened to you, please, please let us know. Uh, of course, uh, Williams picks several ladies and Lee picks just one. And that is the agent who he wants to liaise with the agent that that uh, that he knows is on the island. And he, and he says, well, I would like to I would like to spend my evening with the woman who threw this dart. And Tanya, she's fine with it. She might be a great madam, but she's not a secret agent herself. She's not a sleuth. Then she goes on to Roper and Roper has eyes only for her. Uh, so uh, Anna Capri is really good in all this because yeah, she really um, when she comes in, I, so I want to dwell on this just a little bit. She comes into Williams, and, and and he's got his '70s headphones on, listening to his funky music, and, and oh, you know, disturbs him. He takes him off, and he kind of plays dumb. He kind of plays like he doesn't know what's going on when really he does. And she she kind of does this eye roll, yeah, like she doesn't really like you know she she, she likes him, yeah, but she she doesn't really buy his his kind of initial moi kind of. Yeah. Is this for me? You know, yeah, yeah. and 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 I like that. And and then of course she she engages with Lee, yeah. and she she seems really pleased when Roper picks her. Well, they have it's 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 actually well acted when he first sees her, and when they get on the island, they do see each other, and they do kind of have that that, yeah. that moment fraught with sexual tension. So they clearly are yeah. attracted to each other from the from the get go. I actually believe they're they're romantic. Oh, totally. It, no, uh, they're both very good in all of it. Absolutely. We don't get a lot of it, but we we believe every bit of it, I think, Roper and Tanya. Now, Roper doesn't know what's going on. I don't know how much Tanya knows. She has to know a lot more than she than, than we ever see her tell us. As uh, The character never tells us how much she knows. But I have to think that she knows a lot. I'm not blaming her. I think when you... I, I don't want to... I'm not trying to be critical of her here. I think a character like her is a survivor. No, I... I, see, I think that's I think that's laid out very well. Yeah. If there was one criticism I would have, and it's a pretty slight one, yeah. is that they don't they don't develop her in the in the action plot. Yeah. Like I think that I would. Well, you know, I mean, she's a character I want to know a lot more about, actually. Yeah. She's a character who I want to see, even though we don't get her much, she's a character I want to see more of, and I want to see her join up with this group of heroes. Uh I, I, I think that's what I'm saying is yeah. that actually the film doesn't choose to do that. No, no. I like what the film does and 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 there will be a, a moment later on where it will be like, oh with her character but no I mean the film is unpredictable in that way like today I think they would make a lot of the choices where we, we we're, we're saying that we would like yeah. you know, they would at least not kill people off until the third film yeah anyway we cut to Lee introducing himself to Mei, Mei Ling uh, the yep. agent she tells Lee what's going on on the island the girls disappear I don't know what's happening I don't think I have much longer on the island so you know let's wrap this up and we get Lee in his first attempt to infiltrate the island's security system to find some evidence and it doesn't quite go well for him he doesn't get very far but as he's sneaking around the island one of the things i really like about that is how good he looks being stealthy he's such yeah, a great, no, totally such a graceful he moves so gracefully in these scenes hiding and ducking behind things and the film is also clever too in in some of the ways it pays out its violence in this scene like some of it's just in shadow and we don't even see any of the impacts we see the shadows yeah in it. i think that's all really visually clever yeah what do you think of this first stealth spy action beat of the film. I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, very engrossing. I mean, this is kind of the first moment in the film that Lee is actually 
actually carrying out the mission and not yeah. just kind of going along with flow. So it's the first time we get to see him be in a vulnerable situation yeah. where, you know, if he's caught, he'll have to fight somebody, he'll have to solve a problem. I think it's all it's all very well done. We probably should mention here the sets are really good. They are. Um, they are. And and they provide, as you said, a lot of opportunity for Lee to for Bruce Lee to show his dexterity to hide behind statues or or move quickly when someone's um um you know coming into his line of sight. This is all really well done. Well, one of the things we talk about uh, a lot on this podcast and what we talk about is really important is that the film has done the work of establishing this island in our mind with, yes. the, with the briefing, with establishing shots. We get a sense of the place and somehow they've, I don't, you know, I think this was all shot in Hong Kong. So somehow they managed to take this really crowded place and in Hong Kong and make it look like we were out on an island somewhere far away from civilization. But I, I felt like I was on an island the whole time. And like you and I have talked sometimes about like well gosh i feel like i'm on a film set yeah I not never, here never do i get that sense in this in this movie actually i think that the first stealthy scene happens the next night because we get because we get a day of the tournament before that right and uh we get to see, yes. we get to yes. see williams fight while williams is fighting uh the guy who lee almost drowned actually we we beat senseless by the way something i also like about all the the, the fight scenes of our heroes is that they they are all visually interesting in their own way they don't do the mm-hmm. same things they the film really is good and all the fight choreography was done by bruce lee it's very good at making everybody look good but look different you know yeah it's they're they're not all doing the same kinds of things all the time so i dig that williams decimates his first opponent uh and all that while roper is milking some poor schmuck who doesn't understand how good williams is or how good roper is but here's one of the few moments where we see roper gamble well yeah yeah He he wins his bet and he says to when williams finishes his fight he comes and sits down and Roper says hey man keep this guy going I got like a this guy's a pigeon which I is I'm sure that's gambler speak for something but Roper says well here's your opponent what do you think I'm not I'm sorry Williams says this is your next opponent what do you think uh what do you think and Roper gives him some odds I don't even know if they're good I don't even know if this is good gambling here eight to three I don't hear that very I don't know I don't know any I don't know gambler speak but Roper's gonna play like he's not as good as the guy for a little while and take some beatings to to get this to get his pigeon to want to bet a against him so, do you think do you think that's what he does that's what he was doing yeah okay because because I, I feel like he looks a little panicked at a certain point well he's panicked because the guy's not betting he wants to win the bet more than he wants to win the fight and <laughs> okay and so like because every time he looks at roper i'm sorry every time roper looks at williams he's basically saying can i beat this guy up now because when when rope when when williams finally nods i got the bet it's secure roper beats the guy since like, roper has no trouble beating the guy yeah it's true yeah so he was just like taking some falls, taking some hits so that the guy would think, oh yeah, also it's eight to three. So for every three bucks I bet, he'll bet eight. You know what I mean? I think that that's what he was yeah. doing. What's the risk to me? And then, but of course it was a con, which I thought was kind of funny. And then that, then the next day, the next night, that night is when Lee goes on his adventure, which is, I, I, we've already t- talked about that. The next day of the tournament is where everybody realizes that they are on a different kind of environment. Well, um, well, we do need to point out that Williams against the advice of the women that have, that he chose goes out uh, into the night and sees Lee yeah. on his little adventure on his way back into his own room yeah which Roper's kind of amused by he doesn't think I'm not Roper I'm sorry Williams is kind of amused but by Williams he is but the fact that he's out there and that the girls saw him go out there and a guard very, him out there too because and the guard so it's yeah so it's very important 
to what happens next. Yeah. So, so Lee's went on his adventure. Several guards have dropped the ball, and Han is coldly, calmly furious. Yeah. And he's like, you know, somebody was not, somebody wasn't happy with the hospitality of my island. Uh, sorry, I was trying to do Brando there. I think I failed miserably. <laughs> but he's uh, like, you know, and they chose to go outside and and find their amusement elsewhere. And he's like, who did that? It's not important right now. But what is important is that my guards failed, and they have to earn their place to be among us. What's really interesting, that's not important right now because yes. because he doesn't let it go. <laughs> no, he doesn't let it go. No, that right now is a key clause in that formulation. <laughs> and then this is where we get somebody who's even more formidable than O'Hara, I think. Yes. Which is sort of the tournament ringmaster. He's the guy who kind of calls everything out. He's played by an actor named, I don't know what his proper Chinese name is, but he's always billed as Bolo Jung. And he uh, was Mr. Hong Kong. He was a bodybuilder and a powerlifter in Hong Kong and is a staple of both Hong Kong cinema and a lot of American cinema because he's a big, beefy guy that even, even Western directors have been like, that guy is imposing. We'll put him in our film as a heavy. So he's always a bad guy. Uh, you were going to say something? Uh, Yang Tse. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I mean, that's that's what I see here. Yeah. Yeah. But he sort of always went by Bolo after this because that's his name in this movie. And so the guards uh, have to fight Bolo, the, the muscle-bound henchman uh, of the island. I suppose he's Han's beast man and O'Hara is Han's merman. I don't know if that's right. But, <laughs> but so these are like five or six guards that got beat up by, by Lee. Now they've got to fight for their lives, it turns yeah. out. We don't realize that when the fight starts, but Bolo kills all of them. Quite brutally. He is he is a Bond villain in this scene. <laughs> he and Jaws should get together and have their own franchise. Not Jaws the shark, but Jaws the character from Bond. It's actually very interesting because... Folks, um, I Jason on a Bond tangent. Yeah, you did. Bond henchman that I would most compare him to would be uh, Dave Bautista. Okay. In Spectre. Okay. Who performs some incredibly brutal killings uh, in that film that, that are kind of difficult to watch. And actually, I think, you know, these scenes, you know, sound design, we hear the, you know, the, the crushing of spines and the crushing of, of, of necks. And... Head. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, he, does, uh... he gets on somebody, straddles somebody's back and and this is also a nice visual design because he grabs the guy's hair and you can see him like getting ready to yank back and then the yeah. scene kind of pans up to his face and they're just showing rip back and back to that sound design you were talking about. Yeah, um, the guards did not earn their place among the fighters as it turned out. <laughs> they failed. <laughs> yes. And then they're, drug, then, they're, then they're dragged off by the rest of the Han's army of fighters, you, you you see they're all their eyes have all rolled back into their head. They're all they're all dead men. And Williams is kind of horrified by this. Roper has a better poker face, but he looks back at Han. Williams looks back at Han, and this is a nice moment for Williams, though, because he he regains his composure pretty quickly. But... Are you shocked, Mr. Williams? Only how sloppy your man works. Yeah. This is a nice moment, and uh, and Han also is amused by that line because he has a little laugh at it. It's it's kind of like kind of like that's a pretty good one. That's a, that was that was a good it's fair. I like that. Yeah. But that's not the end of the the bad morning for everybody because Lee gets his first opponent it, right after this, and it's O'Hara. One of the things that Lee does really nicely, though, one of the one of the tournament official officials says Lee. And Bruce Lee leans in and he's like, he's got kind of a smile on his face. He's very pleasant to the guy. 
and it's like your first opponent, and Lee's like, oh, that's that's he kind of nods, and then O'Hara steps up, and then Lee's face just changes, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, this is what I'm here for personally. This is why I'm here. Right, right. That's his reason for being there, really. If he gets the information, great, but this was something that he really wanted. I just think this is a great moment in the film. Han is very excited to see O'Hara work. Folks, the tournament begins, the, the fighting begins in this in this tournament in a kind of a Wing Chun way. One of the ways we practiced in Wing Chun to practice uh, different hand techniques is what we, w- we would establish what was called a front hand cohesion. So if you're fighting with the right lead, your opponent maybe fights with the right lead and you put the backs of your wrists together to touch, they call it the front hand cohesion. You have to, f- to do something from there to get your strike in, to get past this person's guard that's in your way. All the fighting in this film and the tournament begins with that front hand cohesion. So yeah, Wing yeah. Chun kind of thing. And it's, it's more a training tool in, in, in that art than a way to begin a fight. But it's, a, it's an interesting way to do the fighting in the film. Yeah. So I like that choice. We also, in this scene, because of this, this structure, we get to see how fast Bruce Lee actually is. Because he moves his hand quicker than O'Hara can even register. And the wrists touch, they pause for a second, and then Lee's hit him. And you see it in in frame and it's kind of cool I thought you know just how fast Bruce Lee was and Han is fine with that well these things you can see Han well that's okay O'Hara will recover after this they put their wrists together again instant replay of what just happened before and one of the things I really dig about this scene is how it reveals what a punk ass O'Hara really is because he's already starting to lose his composure in the face of a tough opponent yeah Han is looks a little worried but he also looks more interested than worried well yeah because we find out that the one of the reasons why he has the tournament is to look is to scout new talent, which he's very interested in, yeah. uh, as we will find later. Well, yeah, he's, well, he's a little sad for O'Hara. Maybe it's not a big deal for him ultimately, right? Right. Um, O'Hara gets to a second move in in the fight, and Lee scores three clean points, and the fight's over. And as he's getting ready to bow, O'Hara attacks him. He grabs his foot, tries to knock him down. And then what happens after this is is kind of interesting because Lee puts on a clinic as he dismantles this guy who keeps attacking him after the bell, essentially, right? right. Um, and even Han said, O'Hara, don't do this. It's all fun and games. Everybody's clapping for each cool move that Bruce Lee does. And then there's a moment <laughs> where O'Hara tries something and he gets hit with what's called a sidekick in the face and there's no clapping after that. Everybody's like, maybe this is time to stop. O'Hara's lost the fight. Lee's getting ready to walk away. And this I thought was really interesting. He's won. It's over and he's walking away and O'Hara can't let it go and he picks up these two glass water bottles that are on the on the ground convenient he's going to try and kill Lee with them and one of the things I another thing I like about this scene is that like when Lee turns around it's almost like I'm really happy you did this yeah yeah (laughs) because now I have an excuse to do what I really want to do. Now, O'Hara takes a stabbing lunge. Lee deflects it with ease, almost contemptuously, kicks O'Hara in the head, and O'Hara gets up, and Lee delivers an incredible... Oh, sorry. Actually, this happened earlier, where Lee gives the incredible sidekick to him, and uh, anyway, he jumps on O'Hara and crushes him, right? We don't exactly know where he landed, but Lee has killed him. Now, film trivia, uh, there was some tension during this scene, because in the bottle scene... 
the actor who plays O'Hara, Bob Wall, Cutley, accidentally. Oh. And there was, they had to rush him to the hospital. I think John Saxon actually drove him to the hospital for some reason. Uh, when they came, when they gathered again to uh, to fill, complete the scene, um, Bob Wall was upset that everybody was mad at him and he wanted to kind of embarrass Lee because Lee was mad at him too. So the rumor goes. And so he was going to try and stonewall Lee when Lee delivered the sidekick. And he was telling everybody, I'm not going to, I'm not going to move when Lee kicks me with the sidekick. Lee hears this. Um, for listeners who don't know this, Lee was a kind of a master of this technique and he could use it in ways that a lot of people couldn't. He was very fast and the sidekick is a really powerful and treasured technique in the Kung Fu arsenal and he could use it in ways that just people couldn't. Anyway, Bob Wall was going to stonewall him and what we see in the film is Bob Wall being unable to stonewall him and he flies back like, he, he goes stumbling back like 10 or 15 feet. He hits a couple people. All of that is real, him flying back. Oh, wow. And one of the stuntmen behind Wall gets their arm broken in this. Really? Yeah, yeah. They were trying to catch him and stop him. And anyway, I just thought, I think that that's, a, that's something that you have to know, audience, if you're watching this film. That's really Bob Wall getting hammered. Now, of course, they they buried the hatchet really quickly or, or if the hatchet was even there, I don't know. But uh, that's the story on that scene and, and I'm relaying it to you. Is, did the stuntman bury the hatchet? Well, I, you know, you don't know. You don't know. Uh, <laughs> on the set, uh, just another quick trivia note, Bob Wall has talked about this a few times, not this particular moment, but there were people who challenged Lee a lot on the set like extras and oh. stuff. Bob Wall said he, he he seemingly beat a couple people up on the set. I guess it was kind of like the Wild West. You know, if you're the guy who beats the guy, you become the guy. Right. Um, right. But one of the things that Bob Wall said that he was always really impressed with after these little incidents would happen was that like, you know, one of these stuntmen would come running up to Lee and be like, I think I can beat you. And Lee would beat the shit out of him. And then he was like, but Lee wasn't very vindictive. He was just like, all right, go get back to your spot in the set. Go get back on the wall. <laughs> He never had anybody fired. And that's the end of O'Hara. He leaves the, he exits stage over there. And uh, when that's over, Lee turns around and looks at Han like, well, let's get this. I mean, he's ready to get it on right there. Right. You know, he's like, because when he looks, when he looks, he does the action hero glare. Like, it's almost like he's saying to Han, would you want to say something to me? You got something to say? Right. And and Han's not mad at Lee. Han is mad at O'Hara because he says his actions have disgraced us. And he, he leaves. He's at it, O'Hara, I think. Then we get the reaction to all of this by Roper and Williams. And I think that's that's a great moment where uh, they're just like, you kind of see they both have that what have we gotten ourselves into expression. And Roper says, and this is a conversation that they must have had a lot in Vietnam. One of them saying to the other, you want to talk about this later? <laughs> You know where I'll be, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's, it's it's that kind of subtlety that this film does really well. Like that's I sense that these guys have, are really great friends, and uh, yeah. and they're and like uh, they are going to talk later because Roper uh, Roper leaves or uh, starts to leave as Williams is leaving. Somebody comes up to Williams and says, uh, "Mr. Han would like to see you as soon as you can." Williams says, "Hey, Roper, Roper, I'll see. You. I got I got to do something. I'll see you in a half hour." Yeah. Ro- I'm sorry. Uh, Williams goes to see Han, and they have a nice little uh, interaction. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you mentioned that that Han is looking for new prospects. Yeah. Um, but what he wants to know from Williams, because he's heard that he he was out, yeah. he was out and about, which was against the rules, and he he, he asked him uh, if he was the person who um, was assaulted okay. his guards, yeah. and Williams says no. I mean, he's he's honest. Yeah. You know, it wasn't me, but I you know I saw who it was, or, or, or I saw it happen. Rather, because I think what I think uh, what he says was, yeah, I was outside, but I wasn't the 
only one. Yeah, but he doesn't uh, he doesn't provide any more information. And I believe Han kind of makes overtures to all three of them. Yeah, well, one of the things that he, that he says is like, because uh, st- he's he's admiring of of Williams' style. He's like, it's unorthodox, and he's like, but it's pretty effective, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They talk about winning and losing. Yeah, and, uh, and that's pretty pleasant. And you know, once the pleasantries are over, Han wants to know what he was looking for when he was outside, yeah. and he's like, I wasn't. It wasn't me. As a as a as a person like thinking about this situation, I was wondering like Williams, why don't you just say I wasn't the only one, but I didn't see who I didn't I didn't get a good look at who it was. Would that have bought him more time? Maybe not. You know, it's hard to say. But like Williams aggravates Han, and so yeah, because uh, he's not he's not going to tell who it was. Here's a here's a hypothesis: if the incident with Bolo hadn't happened, he might have said I wasn't me. I it, I think it was that Lee guy. Yeah, you know, we were just like, what were you doing out there? You know, if the brutality of Bolo hadn't happened. Maybe maybe Williams might have been like, well, this is just an official asking what's going on. Maybe I'll tell him. But Han just had six people killed for not really a good reason. Not even Skeletor kills his people. Uh, so so there's some tension and, and Williams is like, suddenly I'd like to leave your island. And yeah. And then he sees all the henchmen behind him. And this is one of my favorite. Uh, well, there, there are two great lines in the in the film. And I'm only going to say one of them because I would like the other one to be a surprise for people. But like when Williams looks and sees the henchman, he turns back to Han and says, man, come straight out of a comic book. And then Williams, I think, has consigned more henchmen, uh, more guards to death because he beats the shit out of out of those uh, those guards. And then uh, one of the guards leaning on uh, Han's desk takes a chop to the face from Han. And that's when we have the fight between Williams and, and Han, which is really good, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And audience, spoilers, so stop here. Go watch the movie and come back. Jason, what stood out to you in this scene? Well, you know, I, quite frankly, I, and, and this, this connection might surprise you, the fight between Han and Williams, and, and actually uh, a Han and almost anybody who fights in the film, kind of reminded me of the, the Emperor in Revenge of the Sith. Really? Uh, here's why. Because we don't expect like we know he's supposed to be very capable and I kind of wondered if this actor was up to the task yeah. only because only because only because Jim Kelly and John Saxon and Bruce Lee are so so very good at on screen looking like capable capable fighters uh, as was Bob Wall like you have all these actors in this film who are very good at looking tough on screen they, they, they just look like people they don't have to do anything yeah. To, to seem threatening, Han Han does not look that way. He, yeah. he looks older, and 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 we kind of wonder just how capable he actually is. Um, and we've seen Williams in action. Yeah. Um, I look so in watching the film, you get the impression that Williams is more capable than Roper. Yeah, yeah. I I do. No, I, no, I no, I I think that that's fair. Actually, I think that's right. It's close, but yeah, I think Williams is better. Uh, the fight does not go well for Williams. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the things I dig is how we pay out the secret of Han's success when when Roper swings a, a real I'm sorry when William swings a really sharp kick at him and he blocks it and it hurts William yeah. and we're like some things that's weird because it, it creates it gets a immediate reaction from Williams and he's hurt and that shouldn't have happened yeah. and uh, and that's when things 
start to go downhill for William. Sorry, go ahead. And he 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 is subdued and then kind of piteously killed yeah. by Doctor No uh, with his uh, I with because we discover not Doctor No, um, but we do discover that Han has this metal hand that he's been using. Yes, and and then he uses it to to really to really slaughter Williams in a very well, pitiless way. Well, absolutely, and I I actually think that this is harrowing every time I see it I, and I feel bad for Williams because there's a moment where Williams is doing okay in the fight even after the initial shock of having his shin barked pretty bad by that metal hand but when it starts to go downhill for him and he can barely see anymore Han doesn't dispatch him quickly mercifully he hits him in places that he knows are going to hurt him when Williams misses he hits him in some soft tissue like around the kidneys when they're fighting amongst the 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 women who think everything is fucking funny because Williams goes spinning it, spilling into a into a room full of these women who are high as kites, and everything that happens is is the best joke ever to them. They're laughing, and that's not played for laughs. It's actually kind of horrifying. Oh, uh, um, actually, that makes that makes what's happening very disturbing. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I tell you what, audience, if you feel like commenting, um, I think it's one of the more harrowing death scenes of a hero in any film. I think it's just no, I agree, it's awful. Then at the end of it, as Williams is laid out and unconscious we see like karate chop after karate chop and blood on the cuff of of Han's hand it's it's grisly and he pulls yeah. off the glove and that's when we get the reveal of the metal hand and then the next scene is with Roper and Han yeah Han collects Roper and he's like hey I want to show you around the island well I'm supposed to meet my friend Williams in a few minutes we'll catch up with Williams is what Han says Han is carrying a cat very Blowfield-esque absolutely and uh and Han leads leads Roper through this 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 museum of horrors of old torture devices and stuff like that and uh, one of the cool touches is all these little weird weapons in a case in the center of the room and in the case is the skeleton of a hand and I'm pretty sure that that's uh, that's what I thought too yeah it's gotta be Han's original hand it, it's out of place in this room of horror right and Robert right. looks that and Han kind of has a little chuckle to himself that's a souvenir right right and they they come upon this guillotine he and Roper are having a great bit of acting going on together and he says, here, uh, come up here. And he basically invites Roper to stick his head in the guillotine. He's not going to do. He's like, uh, guillotine, no, this is the only angle I care to see it from. One of my favorite lines on the show. No, oh, no, come on. He's like, you want, put, you want me to put my head in that thing? Uh, Roper asks. And Han's like, consider it an act of faith. Yeah. And, and Roper's like, nah, I'm not. I'm, I'm a man of little faith. And then Han applies a kind of cool test. He puts the cat in the guillotine. And that's a line that Roper can't cross. And so he's got to save the cat and he reaches down and picks him up. Yes. You can, I, one of the things that's nice about Saxon's acting here is you can tell the way he's doing it, Roper's ready to yank his hands back at any moment, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the things that's kind of, there's a, there's, there's a lot of great lines in this film and this one from Han though, just before this happens, when he puts his hand on the pulley that's going to release the guillotine, he says, you know, people under, underestimate how, how much strength it takes to be truly ruthless, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a nice, it's a nice moment. It's a very bond kind of villain to say thing to say yeah. but Roper picks up the cat he, he lets the cat go and he's like oh, you got eight left now Han is kind of Han finds that interesting I think he's like so there is a line you won't cross I get the sense that Han is is interested in all these people in his own way he's not a good guy but he finds that fact interesting about Roper yeah well, well he was testing him yeah and if you're a guy like Han and you're trying to hire somebody like Roper you definitely want to know the limits of your of your person you also want to know I mean that that, that no Knowing that their 
there's things that he won't do could be a lever later on. Right. You know, and he pulls the lever on the guillotine and it's not really a guillotine. It's a, it's, it's one of the many ways into the secret layer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Roper's reaction to being played is pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Suckered again. But then, but then he, Han lays it all out for him. This is what I do. Make opium. I sell women. You may be wondering why I'm at showing you all this stuff. And Roper's like, Hey, I forget what I see really easily. And, but why are you showing me? I, and Roper, Roper's natural curiosity goes along. Roper finds out that the tournament is a way to talent scout all that stuff and uh but all of this has been leading to a terrible reveal by han it's really a jarring moment for the audience and and for roper and we see that in close-up we see the body of williams which is hanging from chains over a a, a little pond in this underground cavern I suspect it must be like acid or something like that's what we're, we're yeah and he he is he is bloodied and beaten and looks i mean it's a great effect oh it's yeah it's a harrowing effect. Yeah. And, and we kind of do a close-up on, on John Saxon as Roper. And he's he's trying to disguise his disgust because he knows this is a dangerous moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he is he's horrified at what's happened to his friend. Absolutely. We see his whispered, oh, shit. That's, that's right, yeah. Then, uh, sorry, Han makes a signal and they drop Williams into the acid. And more horror from Saxon. Roper, I mean, he turns... And Han says, we needed to have an understanding. Right. Like, Roper's a survivor, and he's like, no, there's no misunderstanding, but he leaves it there. When he says there's no misunderstanding, that there, there's a there's a hidden meaning there. Yeah. I think, yeah. No, I think so, too. Now, I don't know what Roper's ultimate play is. I suspect at this moment, he's just going to bide his time to get back to the United States to get off the island, you know, because Han wants him to be his representative in the United States, which Roper clearly has no intention of doing. We get right. that but if this I mean I imagine he has to think if this guy can beat Williams I can't beat him right you know and so my best bet is to get off the island which is a smart play and so that's the end of that scene then we get our next adventure for Lee in spy mode right what a great scene this all is it it, it starts out the same way it did the last time Lee sneaks around goes to the place that he accessed last time but this time he has to pick up a there's a there's a cobra which uh, Lee has to deal with, but he has a plan. He has a he, he deals with that by using the bag that holds his rope. Audience, um, why did it uh, have to be snakes? For those of you out there that have a uh, phobia of snakes, <laughs> as I do, and Indiana Jones does as well, this was very thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll throw you more. Lee, Bruce Lee hated this snake. It bit him a couple times while he was filming these scenes. And so like, there's a moment later on where he's like cussing under his breath at the snake. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's all not acting probably because, and now of course it's been devenomed, I guess. And, and so it didn't, obviously he didn't have to go rushing to the hospital, but if you've ever been bit by a snake, it's not pleasant. I've been bit by plenty. And so uh, I used to work at a pet store, not because I'm like a crocodile hunter or <laughs> anything like that but even non-venomous snakes it sucks to get bit by them they have like a lot of little needle-like teeth but he catches the snake and descends into the he gets all the way into the layer this time yeah. it sounds like his ploy to clear out the radio room would have worked on jason because he he he's like well how do i get them out of that room without drawing attention which i don't know if this really would have worked but but sneaks he, he puts the cobra in the room with them and they react sensibly to the mystery cobra that suddenly appeared they exit the room and uh lee gets to the uh 
telegraph machine. And the minute he turns it on, he must have missed a protocol because it sets off the alarms. And that sets off probably the major action set piece of the film. I think is maybe the, might be the best scene in the film yeah. of action. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I would go with that. I mean, I think the, the film leads up to a very suitable climax. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you started with the Cobra and the sending of the message and then on to the final action scene. Yeah, and so, yeah, all hell breaks loose and Lee is trying to escape. Uh, I don't know where he was going to go after he got out of the lair because he's on an island. <laughs> right, 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 right. But anyway, he has, a mag- he, he, he has a great fight with the guards and we get to kind of see Bruce Lee do hand-to-hand combat. He picks up a bunch of different weapons and fights with those throughout the film and this sort of it's kind of boilerplate action film making but but it sort of dovetails a little bit with some of Bruce Lee's philosophies about fighting which he thought that if you were a martial artist you should be able to fight from any range Mm -hmm. pick up any weapon and be able to defend yourself and so he always thought about the complete fighter he didn't think that things like boxing or necessarily judo or you shouldn't stop at one one thing you should be able to defend yourself in you know any way that you needed to and so his character gets to do that in these scenes and it's all really glorious and fun to watch but he does get caught because they were expecting a return of somebody he gets caught in a little James Bond kind of trap and I really like his response to that because he just sits down well there's nothing I can do now because I'm surrounded by granite walls and iron doors right and then we hear the voice of Han and he's like Han is excited fight with the guards was magnificent and I'm hoping you will join us or something like that you know yeah trying to recruit him yeah Yeah. no hard feelings about any of this but he's also pretty respectful because Lee doesn't say anything and he doesn't press the issue because he kind of realizes that well this guy's a lost cause he's he's a goody two shoes I can't recruit this guy but he but he's going to use Lee as his final test for Roper what Han does is he says well I'm hoping you would to Roper he says I'm hoping you will join us in this morning's edification so so, so Roper's going to fight him and Roper refuses to do so yeah like yeah. you said like you said there's some lines I won't cross and Han is even he's like I was right I was right about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see if I can give you somebody worthy of your grandeur, your sense of grandeur. And that's when he has to fight Bolo. And that's a fun fight, too. We see this Roper trying to figure out ways to stop this guy who's a lot bigger than him and a lot stronger, but isn't necessarily good against somebody who's a good fighter. Like, you get right. one of the things I like about the logic of this fight is that, like, once Roper figures out, I just got to stay out of his reach a little bit. He, I'm not intimidated by him. He's not going to bully me. When Bolo can't bully you he lunges and makes himself presentable for you know counterattack. attack Bo also dies hard because yeah. he gets he gets kicked in the nuts so hard that he dies it looks like it does it does look that way and which uh, is how roper dispensed with his opponent earlier in the film yes yes roper i mean i guess there's no rule against it and there's certainly no rule in a fight against bolo right and it's at that point where han is decided to dispense with the honorable villain rhetoric and he just starts go kill him kill those two he yells at his uh his henchmen and he sends them off uh small groups to attack at first when we were watching this today my wife was like quick go one at a time attack them <laughs> which i thought was pretty funny but but, uh, but, but uh may lin takes this moment to go release the uh in, on the island for some reason han has been kidnapping people probably he's sex trafficking people but he might be just selling slaves to much of like what he calls vagabonds and drunks but none of these people come out of that cage looking like vagabonds and drunks they seem pretty they, they seem pretty miffed when they come out anyway um some of them are quite good fighters uh apparently because they um they do end up winning the day yeah 
Well, and, and it's a crucial thing because as good as Roper and Lee are, they are wildly outnumbered. There are a couple things, a couple acting things that happen here that I really like. One, I like Hans. Oh my God, my empire is falling down around me. You get that sense. And uh, the other key bit of acting, and it's it happens quick and you might miss it if you're not looking for it, but Tanya is horrified by what's happening and she looks very worried about Roper. Yeah. Uh, oh, totally. That's 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 a nice touch. And uh, But the reinforcements arrive and Han gets out a new hand. It's the three claw hand. This is a nice little thing that happens too because I, I like the way that the, the, the film shows the first damage of the hand and that's when uh, one of these guys in black who's been a prisoner runs up on, on Han to give him what for. Han dodges him and slashes down and when the guy turns around he gives us a Wilhelm scream. <laughs> And he's got like these the reveal is that he's got like these giant claw marks in his face and he looks pretty horrified as he dies I don't know if that would really kill you but probably would hurt <laughs> but then we get this nice little fight uh, everybody's showing off their skills and it's uh, chaos and uh, our first little match between uh, Han and, and Lee happens here Lee gets cut but uh, Lee's clearly getting the better of the fight he, he causes Han's hand to get dislodged and Han retreats and Lee has to give chase I think that this final this final fight scene between Han and Lee is really kind of epic. Yeah. We do have this this kind of battle between two armies yeah. kind of motif that goes on. But clearly, as the viewer, we're focused on the fight between these two. And I think that, that the fight lives up to, to, to what is... Um, it does. To its billing. Because, I mean, as I kind of said earlier, when Han is first introduced earlier in the film, we know that he's capable. We know that he came from the same temple as, as Lee yeah. and that he was kind of the prized pure who's kind of uh, you know uh, gone the uh, down the wrong path yeah. so so we know he's supposed to be great we've seen him kill Williams but we've also we've also seen Lee in action okay but here's the thing we've also seen Roper and Lee and Williams fight actors who, who look a little bit more capable yeah and that includes O'Hara as well yeah. and so as a viewer I was wondering okay how legitimate will this look you know if Han is going to be the person that has to defend himself if that's going to be the climactic fight scene how good is it actually going to look yeah yeah the answer very good well i mean um, it works very well does work very well and a lot of it is the way they choose to shoot sometimes they do a lot of first person shooting correct the other thing they do is they do a, do a very skillful use of doubles like they'd have a more athletic actor in han's outfit to do some of the and they shoot him from shoot him from behind yeah. exactly exactly and it's good enough that you you don't notice it unless you've seen it a hundred times the other thing that the other reason why it works really well is that you you nailed something that i hadn't really thought about han is older he is past yeah. the prime and with the exception of the cuts that he puts on this is and and when he when he enters the subterfuge room where he's going to use illusion and mirrors to kind of give himself an edge when it's a straight up fight it's an old man fighting a young man and the old man is right. not doing very well in the fight i mean lee sort of pays back some of that cruelty that 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 uh, han visited on williams because i mean he takes pot shots he you know when he has han stumbling and and suffering some brain trauma mm. he gets a little fancy a couple times and maybe he shouldn't have but but he he does have a lot of karma to pay back to han you know right we get this funny we get this cool line when when just before the fight starts and lee has him cornered and he's like you have offended my family and you have offended the Shaolin Temple. And uh, that's all Lee says. And all Han says is, "Yeah." And what I just did, audience, was raise my four knife hand. 
Because <laughs> uh, Han doesn't give a shit about any of that, which I kind of liked that he didn't even respond. He didn't try and justify himself. He just smiled and like, yeah, that works for the dummies. Right. And uh, and they have a cool fight. And even though Han is pretty much losing for most of it until they get into the mirror room, uh, I think it's really effective. The martial arts looks good. Um, and Han is an old dog who's got some good tricks. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so as the fight's going badly, Han tries to spear Lee and, you know, it doesn't work, but he is able to escape into his, uh, his, this hall of mirrors. Yeah. And, uh, now this scene, when they go into the mirror room, it reminded me a little bit of the Scaramanga fight uh, from a, from the Bond movie, uh, the, the man, man with the golden gun. gun from the next year. But it is, you know, this, this, it's this little trap that, that, uh, that, that Han has, and it gives him an edge because he knows the glass, the mirror maze perfectly. Right. He doesn't have any trouble moving through it. And so he's able to get the jump on Lee a few times, but then Lee in this version that we saw, Lee puts his back up against the wall and hears the voice of his master who says, reach out with your feelings, Lee. No, he doesn't say that. He, he, <laughs> he reminds him that the way to beat somebody who uses an illusion is to break the illusion. And so Lee starts breaking the mirrors. That way he finds his way to, to the real deal, to Han. And earlier in the film, Han had rammed a spear through a wall. He and Lee square off for the final time and Lee gives him a kick. And I really like Lee's surprise when the fight's over because he's like, he gives him a hard kick and he's ready for more. And then he's like, oh, I guess the fight's over. We just see that 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 reaction in his body language. And then we pan to Han, who is uh, hoist on his own petard, if a petard was a spear and he was, <laughs> and, and you could be impaled on one. Anyway, and that's the end of the fight. And, and close us out, Jason. Tell us what happens next. Well, I mean, um, we also get a, uh, uh, I guess, a comic relief scene where uh, our, our British M spy M character who gave the mission is uh, kind of relaxing. And then he receives a, a very late... Uh, <laughs> Uh, message from Lee and he's like oh oh hell this this message is you know however long old we got to get going yeah. because uh so so the cavalry does arrive but uh not in much time to really be of much help well the cavalry arrives when everything's over yeah you know um I like when Lee makes it back up to the he's out of the the illusion trap we see Roper just kind of sitting down tired Roper scans around and that's where we find that Tanya didn't make it through the fight she's dead we didn't see it happen Happen, which I'm kind of glad about, but it kind of makes this moment kind of even sadder because Roper's like, oh, that's too bad. Um, yeah. I could have, could have really made a life with that prostitute. <laughs> then he and Lee see each other and they give each other kind of a resigned thumbs up. And that's when the cavalry arrives after they've won and done all the work. And then back to that soundtrack. Wacha! And uh, and then that's the credits roll. Anything you want to add? We've, we've, we've covered the film. This is a martial arts film, which isn't a genre you watch a lot. Right. But, but it, you know, as I had remarked earlier, it kind of acts as a multi-genre film. Yeah. However, however, I, I, I do think, and, and I, you know, I've read that other people felt this. A, and I think that if you put yourself back in the time period, this was an attempt to, to knock the James Bond series from the throne. Yeah. It was a logical time to do it. Sean Connery had just, was, what was done. There was a Bond film that came out at the, the same year as this. Roger Moore's first Bond film okay. came out. Uh, the same year as as End of the Dragon, and so I um and, and I've heard that there was you know there was an idea to keep this series going, and I have read there are certain critics that have written essays or articles wondering what the world would have been like if this series had because as you quite correctly pointed out, this was an obscenely popular movie worldwide. What would have happened if the Roger 
more James Bond series, which was just beginning, had had to compete with a Bruce Lee spy martial arts centric series? Well, I mean, it's a good question um, because one of the things that you don't mind it when you're watching a Roger Moore film, but he doesn't look as good as Sean Connery did back in the day in in the the fighting stuff. He's fine with the gun. He's fine with the, the other espionage stuff that he has to do. But but Sean Connery doesn't even compare very well to Bruce Lee in these in right. these films. And so how you know I mean I always get a little annoyed when when film companies look at it in terms of competition you know because you can have different yeah yeah, yeah. you can have uh, the Bond films or, or and you can have the Enter the Dragon spy films the Lee spy films you can have Marvel you can have DC we don't have to you know what I mean yeah yeah uh, you know I'll see a couple movies on a weekend it's fine you know <laughs> right right you know uh, so I always I always I always find that a little uh, annoying but if you're somebody like Warner Brothers and you don't have a franchise you definitely want to kind of think about well how do we get into this market you know yeah. and as obscenely popular as Enter the Dragon was you have to you have to wonder what the film landscape would be like today if Lee hadn't died. No, I think it would have been, I think it probably would have been a different world. I think so. I mean, it's a very well-paced movie. It's a really, really great story. Yes. Um, that that, uh, that kind of captures the imagination. We talked about some of the, the Bond nods. Yeah. You know, I mentioned the, the the mechanical hand, which which ends up just being an appendage, Yeah. but it's very similar to Dr. No. Oh, yeah. Uh, who, who has the mechanical hands. You mentioned Blofeld's cat. The fact that we have this island base, yes, yes. and which, uh, and then the the Bond film from this year, Live and Let Die, also involved heroin. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, and and was a black exploitation, yes, yes. Uh, film as well. So I I actually tried to figure out Live and Let Die wrapped before Enter the Dragon started. Okay, but I was a little curious about some of the aesthetic because there's a scene earlier in the movie, right before or actually right after the capturing of the Cobra. Yeah, when uh, when Bruce Lee is going, you know, he's in the bowels of the fortress yeah. and he's surrounded by uh, kind of a cave-like yeah, yeah. and he's wearing a, a black Body sweater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you watch Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. when when James Bond at the end of the film goes down into Kananga's, which is Yafet Kato's character, yeah. into the bowels of his fortress, there's a rock wall and Roger Moore is wearing the same the same sweater. Okay. Now, now the problem Problem is, Living That Die was not released when Enter the Dragon was filming. Okay. I cannot see where either film could have copied off of each other. Well, you know, uh, it's one of those things where where there's something in the in the ether, I guess, and there's an idea that is every it's on the tip of everybody's tongue, and sometimes people get to it at the same time. And it's not really nobody's copying anybody like uh I know that uh oh, what is it? Um well think about like uh oh a few years back there were two big volcano movies. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nobody was copying each other. They were they'd done different disaster films the year before, and so you got to come up with something new. And two different studios came up with volcano movies. They were quite different, both equally not good. Man Thing and Swamp Thing, another example. Yeah, of, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Hitting on the same idea at about the same time. So no, I I think when you're like doing these kinds of films, you're sort of already uh, you're, you're you're moving over this well trod territory. So in the effort to kind of find new things you probably that kind of thing happens a lot i'm sure yeah well now that, now that being said i um so i i, I kind of defended living that die a little bit but i think there's no doubt 
that uh, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman and Eon Productions felt the footsteps because the man with the golden gun was absolutely <laughs> yeah a ripoff or uh, not a ripoff but the, the mirror scene definitely yeah but the attempt to incorporate Eastern martial arts yes yes was definitely an attempt to try to take advantage of the success that entered that 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 entered the dragon had and take advantage of the fact that Bruce Lee had died and that yeah. they really didn't need to worry about a counterpunch. It's true. Right? It's, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So like, but they, they definitely wanted to get that, they wanted to tap into that vein that everybody kind of was interested in, you know? Yeah. And uh, and uh, I, 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 I like Man with the Golden Gun, but you're right. I mean, there there are some major similarities uh, to the films that, that are hard to deny. Um, yeah. Well, well, this is a much better film. <laughs> by, by, by a country mile. Yeah. No doubt about it. That's true. Um, Man with the Golden Gun is 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 a lot of fun, but um, um, I would be hard pressed to recommend it over it's this. A guilty pleasure. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the verdict. End of the Dragon. And I had not seen this film until just a week ago. I I, I did what end up watching it twice. Found it very engrossing, very exciting. I found myself very saddened by the fact that Bruce Lee did not get the chance to to turn this into uh, to flesh it out into what would have been, I think, a very fun series. All of the elements of this film work so well. The the the, the, the three action leads are are um, great action heroes, great actors, great presences. The the fight scenes are are, are well done. The story is um, uh, compelling and exciting, and definitely brings the viewer along. The score is very well done. This is a really really exciting movie that. I think has aged very well. I I will definitely watch it again. I I would recommend this film very enthusiastically. It this is a this is a great movie. This is a great action movie, and its uh, its influence on films for years to come is obvious to any any film goer. See, yeah, I I concur with everything Jason just said. This uh this film has certainly launched. This is the film that launched a thousand ships in terms of I don't know how many people this must have inspired to take up martial arts or to try martial arts but it certainly was an inspiration to me it was one of the films that got me into uh into martial arts um i wanted to take what he took i wanted to do the art that he wanted he did uh, and invented but in richmond indiana there was only taekwondo so i did that for a few years but the mark that this film has left on cinema is in its own way as profound as probably something like citizen kane for a lot of different reasons obviously no, i but, i can see that yeah this year sometime we're going to get a movie called shang chi yeah and without this film, there is no Shang-Chi in the Marvel. Yeah. Uh, MI, he becomes an MI6 agent. He looks like Bruce Lee, so much so that the Lee family probably could have sued Marvel. <laughs> for the likeness. No, this film, when you watch this, you are watching, and you should watch it, you you are watching a piece of history that is a pretty amazing blend of a bunch of different cultural ideas that just manages to be a fun ride. You don't realize you're watching, you, you don't realize you're seeing a cultural event while you watch it. You just think this is a fun movie. And yes. at the end of the day, though, you're watching a, a landmark film. And and I don't know, I, I can't really sing the praises of the film enough. Jason said enough as it is, but, and nailed everything that I would want to 
say. Well, let me ask you this. Is this your favorite martial arts film? You know, when I walked, when, when I sat down to watch this, I was not sure that it was. It doesn't have the most pretty or flowery martial arts displays. But for me, for my taste, I think it might be. I think it I think it might be my favorite martial arts. When, when you add story and... Yes. I, I, um, because, you know, well, I mean, we've made a lot of James Bond comparisons. Yeah. But, but actually, uh, Jim Kelly as Williams is right. That there's a comic book element to it as well. Enter the Dragon is a balanced approach to all of these elements, right? And that's that's where I think it. This is this is the this is the corner I turn while watching it. It it does the film. It does justice to everything that it needs to do in a balanced way. I I would agree with that. And and in that way it becomes in that way and that's why it's earned more than any other martial arts film in history. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, because it manages to appeal to a wide body of audiences that yeah. that uh that like something you know a hong kong movie purist might think is so much better for whatever right. reason anyway no i think that it has moved into my favorite it must be yours since you don't really jump into this genre too often this really kind of knocked my socks off so yeah i really liked it well i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad i did but uh that's it uh have we decided what we're doing next you're gonna decide what we're doing next ready go misery all right Okay, so we're going to do Misery. I haven't seen it in years. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be awesome. And guys, share us on social media. Share us with all your friends. Uh, you know what to do. Um, Jason, do you watch anything? you see anything else lately that you want to tell the audiences they need to see? Not I, no. I've been watching The Bad Batch. You guys should watch that. And uh, that's it. That's all I got. Bye-bye. Back. Thank <laughs> you.